episode of Dopey is brought to you by our very good friends at Oro Recovery. Oro was created by Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. Their mission, to create a treatment that helps people out by using connection and compassion rather than control. Before I say another thing about Oro, it needs to be said that every person that I know that has been to Oro has only said good things about it. Literally. Not even joking. They've only said good things about it. What I know about Oro is that their staff has decades and decades and decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders. I know that their detox makes it as comfortable a kick as possible, which is critical. I know they have amenities you wouldn't believe. Sound bath meditation, fucking equine therapy, surfing, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge. But I know that they've been rated top five uh, rehabs for years in publications as good as Newsday and, and other big-time magazines. But the testimony of people that I know is the most important to me. So if you're fucked and you want to get some help and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California, I cannot suggest going to Oro enough. Check them out at ororecovery.com. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our very good friends at Sober Buddy. What is Sober Buddy? It's an app, but it's so much more than that. It is an app with a community built in. It is an app with a community built in that has meetings. They have instructional Zooms. They have challenges. They have personalities within the app that can help you. And I'm one of the personalities. We're doing a Zoom tonight. I guess you're not going to hear it because it would have been yesterday night. But yesterday night, we did a Zoom all about cravings. Sober Buddy has tools to help you get well, and it has a community that keeps you company along the way. Check them out in the App Store, the Google Play Store, or at YourSoberBuddy.com. Sign up now. You get the free week, and you get the free Sober Tracker, YourSoberBuddy.com, or at the App Store or the Google Play Store. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our very good friends at Evolution Accounting and Consulting. Are you an entrepreneur? Are you a dreamer? Do you have a business? Do you have an accountant? If you have a business, you might need an accountant. What can an accountant do? What can Evolution Accounting and Consulting do for you? They can take care of all of your tax issues. They can take care of all of your payroll issues. They can take care of Everything that is counting related so that you can focus on what you got into that business for in the first place. And the best thing about Evolution Accounting and Consulting is Eric, their chief 
operating officer is a fucking crackhead. Total addict like you and me. Only like some of us, he's also in recovery, and he knows the success as well as the struggle. To connect with Evolution Accounting and Consulting, you go to www.evolution-accounting.com. Mention Dopey and receive special discounts. Again, it's www.evolution-accounting.com. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our very good friends at Pink Cloud. What is Pink Cloud's different app? It is your sober companion connecting you to over 250,000 meetings worldwide. It, it gives you access to AA, NA, Crystal Meth Anonymous, Al-Anon, Alatine. It is the largest comprehensive list of 12-step meetings anywhere. There's over 250,000 meetings. They also offer complete privacy. They do not share their data with anybody. There's no password, no login, no nothing. If you need a meeting, go to gopinkcloud.com for free right now. Again, you need a meeting, go to gopinkcloud.com and go to your meeting. Experience your pink cloud. All right, that's enough of the ads. Here is the fucking show. Welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave. I am well. Hope you guys are well. I'm super excited to be bringing you another episode of our podcast. And this episode, we have a guest, like a crazy, fucked up, dopey guest. But there's some stuff happening that I think I should tell you about. One thing that I, I never told you guys about is that uh, I told you last week about how much I love my dog and how much my dog loves me. We're, we're in a deep and loving relationship, me and my dog. But there's one thing about my dog that nobody loves, and that's her anal glands. Now, all the old-time dopes will remember when Chris, and Chris, of course, started dopey with me, and he overdosed and died from fentanyl uh, a few years ago. Chris had a girlfriend named Annie, and Annie's still alive. She's actually pregnant. She was at DopeyCon. And Annie has a dog named Sammy, who is a big, white, fluffy Samoya. And Chris had to express Annie's anal glands. And I was just so disgusted until it happened here. And Winnie's anal glands seemed to be a little too robust. And um, I had to take her. I'm not expressing her anal glands. Linda has kind of been <laughs> interested in expressing her anal glands, but she's not doing it. But I took... Winnie to the vet and they express her anal glands and she screams and it is so sad to be there with, you know, this dog. And I'll say this again. No one has ever loved me as much as this dog loves me. And I take her to this vet and they, you know, express her anal glands and poor Winnie is just screaming. And uh, it's a very painful, it's painful for me. Just try to reassure her that it's going to be okay and it's going to be over quickly. So I don't know. And, and, and the anal glands just smell so bad, but, uh, we've gotten a bunch of emails. I got an Instagram message from this dude in Argentina, which really blew me away. He said, uh, let me find the message. He says, 
his name is Marcelo, right? And Marcelo uh, says, hey, my name is Marcelo. I'm an addict from Argentina. My English sucks, or my English is sucks. Thanks for your job. He said, I, and I said, right on, Marcelo, thanks. He said, I recently discovered your podcast, and I think it's genius. I've been listening to it since beginning, and since my English is very basic, it is a, a bit difficult for me. But what I hear helps me and gives me strength to continue. I have a lot of self-delusion, and I have my reservations with marijuana, and I am studying the fungi world. My any colleagues do not like it at all. I think they are right, and I should concentrate more on recovery. Um, I send a greeting. Thank you very much for what you do. I have 26 days clean. And uh, me and him have been messaging a bit. And then he says, sometimes I want to make my own program and be able to smoke weed, and I dream about being able to cure myself with mushrooms. But the truth is that in my own experience until today, no drug has ever helped me. The issue is that sometimes I think that the world and studies have advanced so much that why can't they see another alternative? How to do therapy with microdoses of mushrooms. Forgive me for taking up your time talking about these stupid things, but it's my reservation, uh, and I can't get it out of my head. Every day I get down on my knees and surrender my will to my higher power, asking it to help me live the program and get this shit out of my head. Thanks for everything, and sorry for so many messages from a sick person. And we messaged some more. And uh, now he has uh, almost 60 days. I think he has 55 days. And, like, uh, you know, like, however you get sober, good for you. That's what we always like to say. Um, if abstinence is not working for you and you like smoking weed and taking mushrooms and that's working, great. Let your freak flag fly. But if you're if you're struggling, you know, I I I love my my 12-step abstinence-based program. You know who hit me up today? It was uh fucking Fentanyl J. And I love Fentanyl J. And me and Jay and Winnie took a walk through town, and it looks like Jay is gonna be coming back to the show in January, which I'm very excited about. And uh I'm sure you guys will love to hear from him too. I'm gonna read you another email and then we're gonna get into the show. Today's guest is like Bananas dopey. As dopey as it gets. On a Fentanyl J level. Obviously, he's not Fentanyl J, but his dopey is of similar levels. Okay? We'll just leave it at that. And again, for the OG dopes out there, do you guys remember this Australian guy named Maurice? And he wrote a story about like somebody ODing in his house, and he took the... <laughs> he thought the guy died, and he took the body... And he put it in a phone booth and then somebody found them, but he woke up and he wasn't dead. So I got a note from him and he says, yeah, mate, I still do have some funny killer dopey tales. One about doing my care worker job overnight with an ADHD hyperactive kid. So I slipped him a tramazepam and I was convinced I killed him for four hours. Uh, another one, a house break in where I pretended to be a dog going to jail. Very frightened, only to realize that I knew everyone there. Six trip Rick's first time accidental acid overdose, hugging and comforting my sister straight after her same sex partner died with pockets full of morphine I had stuffed in my pockets whilst everyone watched her body being loaded into the ambulance. And he says, I don't know if I could tell that one. Oh, man. Melbourne skate bowl dealing and hold the record record for the amount of single deals sold in one day. 
uh, mates with the Papa's brothers. I don't know who that is. My big name DJ mate who would cut up postcards in the booth and sell little squares as acid, making thousands a night, only to have people come up and hug him, stating it's the purest thing they've ever had. And as I speak, loads of unspeakable dopey, moth-eaten, grimy shit, cunt-head, selfish, stupid shit stories keep coming to mind. I've been listening weekly... And I've been listening weekly and listening for five years and not paid a bloody thing, so I should contribute something. I had my worries about Chris, but everyone's an expert, I guess. I'll write down ten minutes. I guess I owe you that, old mate. Cheers and toodles. Don't say toodles, man, for Chris. Thank you, Maurice. I appreciate that. Um, I'm going to read one more, and then we're going to get to Diddy. This is Diddy Dopey. Fucking fucked up episode. All right. He says, this is another email. Hi, dopey folk. I just finished your episode with Jess Leahy, and I'm still laughing at your bitter gratitude list at the end. Somewhere in this episode, you say that you are immature and goofy, and I cannot agree more, and this is exactly what has kept me hooked on the podcast since discovering it. In a world saturated in forced positivity, self-help mumbo-jumbo, your fresh and honest take on recovery is a real delight. You give so much of yourself, Dave, and I wonder if this can sometimes feel like a kind of atonement for years and years of sneaking and deceiving that you talk about. As a fellow sneak, I could imagine it might. I'm truly not a podcast person, Dopey being the absolute exception. My dear friend introduced me to Dopey at the beginning of 2022, and it has been a huge part of the choices I've made this year. Though I wish I could say I've been fully abstinent, at least I've been healing my relationship to myself. This sounds pretty mumbo jumboy. <laughs> Letting myself down less and facing this compulsion to disappear into the oblivion. It's been one of the better years that I can remember. Thanks for being a part of it. You're welcome. And thanks for all of your support network and the people involved with making Dopey possible, especially your adorable father, who, even if he did cause your heroin addiction, is angelically putting up with so much of your stupid shit now that you ought to call it even. It's fair enough. In this recent episode, uh, Jess Leahy says something about turning the skills we learned in active addiction into a force for good, and you and the podcast are a perfect example of that. Stay honest and stay immature, Dave. And, of course, toodles for Chris. And that is from Jay. And I appreciate the note. Uh, and, Jay, you get socks. And, Maurice, you need to send in a real story. You get socks. And fucking Marcelo is in Argentina. That's an expensive shipment of socks. But you get socks, too. So if you listen to this episode, uh, send me your address, and I will send you socks. And if you want socks and you want your story to be read, uh, email it to dopeypodcast at gmail.com or send in a voicemail. We love voicemails. I've got a couple of voicemails on deck for maybe next week coming up. And um, before we get to the show, I want to talk about Another app that I have been using, it is a new sponsor for the show. It is called Sober Together. It's a really interesting app because it's kind of like a way to connect with other addicts in recovery and actually see them and talk to them. You record a video check-in and then they respond with a video check-in. And like, let's say you're not comfortable going to a meeting, but you want to connect with addicts. It's a way to connect with addicts. And I've been doing it for the last few days. 
And it's really cool because I'm hearing from people and I'm, I'm meeting them without having to go anywhere. I just think that's a super amazing feature for an app to help sober people. And the best feature is it's free. It's fucking free. So go to the App Store, the Apple App Store, sign in to Sober Together. There's a bunch of people uh, from Dopey Nation, a bunch of dopes out there. I'm on there. I'm actually doing, I'm doing the fucking daily reflections on there. Don't tell anybody. I've been harangued into doing daily reflections, and I'm doing it on Sober Together. So go join Sober Together. Let your face be seen. And if you don't want that, you could just record your voice. Connect with some addicts and some alcoholics. It's awesome. And before we get to... This is a crazy dopey fucking episode. It is a crazy long conversation. So get ready. This guy has the fucking pedigree. The serious, serious dopey pedigree. I don't want to keep hyping it up, but I want you to be ready. Before we get to Diddy, I want to remind you guys about fucking dopey Patreon. Dopey Patreon is like the lifeblood of our thing. Support Dopey Patreon. Uh, I've recently discovered a treasure trove of old videos that I'm posting. I posted a video of me interviewing the Blastmaster KRS-One this week from 1998. I posted a piece we did about Indian Bangra music, Bangra music from SOBs in New York, which was 1999. It's pretty classic shit. Yesterday... I put up like a two-hour-long episode with MC Search where we talk all about addiction, New York City hip-hop. Just an amazing conversation, only available on Patreon, plus other shit. Ray was on last week. There's new shit coming to Patreon very, very soon. It is totally worth two bucks for the content. We did an amazing Patreon Zoom last weekend, really fun Five bucks to do the Patreon Zoom with the content. Ten bucks, you get the Patreon Zoom, the content, and stickers. And 15 bucks, you get all that stuff and socks, too. And uh, if you want to pay more, uh, we have other options. But go to Patreon. Help me get out of Katz's. I'm dying to do this full time. It's www.patreon.com slash Podcast. Don't be shy. If you've enjoyed Dopey for free for five years like fucking Maurice... Sign up for Patreon. And now, get a fucking bag of popcorn or something. Because this is a long-ass, super dopey conversation between me and Diddy. Here we go. I'm sitting... I realize I don't even know your name. That's crazy. I know your name. Your nickname is Diddy. I know your first name. I know your name. Should I say your full name? Sure. Richard T. Butera. There's a restaurant in our town called Butera's. Okay. And it's delicious. That's how I remembered your name. Okay. And Richard goes by the nickname Diddy. And those are with T's. That's with T's. D I T T Y. Like Titty, but <laughs> Diddy. And uh, and Richard came to Dopey by way of Dopey producer Sam. And uh, from what I understand, Diddy's story is insanity. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's cool to be here. And I, I listen to you guys, and so to be sitting here is pretty cool. Nice. That's always good. Yeah. And um, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. And when's the first time you got high? Uh, when I was 11 years old, marijuana, smoking weed. Uh, I remember going to the Pink Floyd concert 
uh, the summer of seventh grade with my, uh, maybe I shouldn't say, but with my, maybe I should say, well, you with, an, with an English teacher of mine. And, uh, was Roger Waters and Dave Gilmore together? I, no, and and he married my eighth grade English teacher because they're the two teachers that took us to the concert. I had tickets, so we all went to the concert together. Uh, being myself, my best friend, and my eighth, seventh, and eighth grade English teacher to the Pink Floyd concert, "Dark Side of the Moon," Spectrum in Philadelphia. So Roger Waters and Dave Gilmore were there playing "Dark Side of the Moon" the, the real first time, deal. right? Yeah, yeah, in like 1977 or eight, I think. Okay, so we yeah. get we get your age, but and that's bananas. Like that's something that everybody would uh, love to be able to have done. Oh my god! And then I was, a, you know, a Pink Floyd follower from there to uh, <clears throat> to Animals and Dark Side of the Moon. Wish you were here. I just saw the remake of all that uh, in West Palm Beach. It was it, the show was okay. Me and okay. my wife went to see uh, the Roger Waters show, and uh, I was amazed. I couldn't even believe it. Yeah, their light show in the seventies, you know. Far exceeds stuff that goes on today. So it was amazing, you know, having floating pigs through the spectrum in Philadelphia that were the size of, you know, buses. Now, when Sam tells me that your story, because I mean, Richard Diddy is uh, he's humble and he he's like my story is the same as anybody's story. But from what from what I heard, it's not true. I heard that your story is like over the the moon. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Uh, why? How did Sam hear of you? Uh, well, a friend of Sam's uh, had reached out uh, through my sister uh, wanting help. And I'm in the treatment business, the, you know, uh, in admissions, sort of end of things and, and uh, family intervention. So they reached out to me and it took a few weeks or a couple weeks of, of talking with him and he was resistive, and uh, and and then he finally um, agreed to go, and he's doing great. He's out in L.A. And but so how did your legend get to Sam? Like, how did Sam find out how depraved addict you are? <laughs> Through my sister, probably, and another another guy named Tad, who's a Aspenite. You know, we all grew up together in Aspen, and uh, so Aspen in the '80s was insane. And that's where I learned. I went there with some bad habits from high school in Pennsylvania, you know, and I got out there and a, a ski bum and, you know, working and skiing. And my father lived there. And then my sisters followed up. So we were a whole family, basically, in Aspen. And uh, how old were you when you moved to Aspen? So I was 19 years old, something and, like that. And where was your addict? status at 19 i was i was already deep into the cocaine habit you know i was already dealing in high school you know just to support my habit and so and hallucinogens we had done cocaine and speed back then it was speed and speed was always my first love you know cocaine we did because we couldn't find speed so when when was the first time you got speed in boarding school believe it or not like I believe it. In seventh grade, there was a kid whose father was a, a child psychologist. Uh, so he showed up with a couple mason jars full of straight speed amphetamine. And What we, did he prescribe it as? Well, the kid showed up. He stole him from his dad and brought him to school. So he had to, like seventh, eighth, and ninth grade, anybody willing to do speed was hooked. And you had to have one the next day. It was very... Uh, it. It grabbed you like if you didn't have one for the next morning, you were you, fucked. You, yeah, you were fucked. 
So you and you just you just took them down. You, or well, no, they were they had a pink coating on them. So I put them in my mouth, sucked the pink coating out. This is in you know seventh and eighth grade, pink coating down. Smash and my daughter's it, in seventh it, grade right now. Snort it right there. And by the time you got to, uh, it was called chapel. It wasn't Bible. They called it chapel. Morning meeting. Sit there, and I remember like the same time each morning, the hair would stand up on the back of my head. You know, as soon as that thing, because I'd eat it right before I went to chapel. You're talking about 12, 13 years old. So I can't even ask you, what were you thinking about when you sucked the pink? Do you remember what you were thinking about? Just that I didn't want to swallow it. I wanted it to all hit me at once. I mean, I knew that much at that age. And, and, uh, and, and that same habit continued on with Adderalls. And, you know, so I, I always would gravitate for speed. And, and there went a long time between the, um, what did they call it? Um, the speed back then, crank, from when crank sort of fell off the market and nothing was there for years, you know. And plus I was in Aspen, it was the 80s, and cocaine was everywhere. Um, I mean, all I needed really in Aspen was 20 bucks and a ride to happy hour, and and I'd come home five days later, you know, without a job and start all over. And so what? describe the scene in Aspen. I just watched Hot Tub Time Machine. I'm imagining it was kind of like that. It was, there was... Uh, Did you ever see Hot Tub Time Machine? It's very stupid. I haven't. It was, uh, it was cocaine fever, man, and it was, it was everywhere. So the bartenders would, would deal the cocaine. I mean, there was dealers everywhere, but the, there was three primary bars that everybody went to. Like, literally, you'd open a tab at all three and just rotate around between the three. So if you ran out of coke or whatever, you just walk up to the bar, order a drink, have a cigarette in your hand, and and he knew what that meant. And he'd light your cigarette with a pack of matches back then. It was called the Tippler. We called it the Crippler. And he'd hand you the pack of, you know, light your cigarette, hand you the pack of matches, which had the gram of coke in it. And you were off to the races, you know. When you were dealing, you, you were in, were you in boarding school through the end of high school? Like, were you dealing in boarding school? No, I wasn't dealing. I was just doing it then in boarding school. And then... So the summer of eleventh uh, grade, I really got into sort of buying ounces of coke and and dealing them. And we had like senior week down at the Jersey Shore, where you know I had all the coke, and I had that's where I first got that feeling of power because it was people were coming to me, you know. And I who were selling you ounces? Uh, <laughs> there was one particular guy who was a couple grades ahead of me in in school. And uh, he, his brother was in my class, but uh, he, I don't know if I should mention his name. But anyway, he, uh, he no, I wouldn't. But uh, he, yeah, he'd front me an ounce, and then I'd, you know, gather up the money, go get another one, just, you know, like kids. And, uh, and the best part is, like, you, you, I was, like, you expect, you half expect you to say, Tony Montana gave me, like, the ounces, <laughs> but just another kid in high school. Oh, yeah. yeah with yeah. ounces of Coke. Yeah, he might have graduated, so he, he might have been out of high school at that time and so I didn't go back to boarding school I was in college prep school so my 12th year I'm like I'm not going back there you know I had this little business cutting trees and selling firewood in the winter and and, you know I thought you know that's enough with coke yeah yeah and that and dealing coke and a little girlfriend I worked for one of the banks over there I'd run stuff around after school between the banks and so I had a good job and you know I was like hustling and uh and it was all going okay until I had one day uh, driving my car, running uh, bags from, there must have been bags of checks. They were locked bags from bank to bank. Penn National Bank, I think it was. 
and I had a grand mal seizure in my car driving down the road. Luckily, my girlfriend was in the car and grabbed the wheel and everything was okay. But that sort of began a series, I'll call it like a phase, the, the, the grand mal seizure phase. And it was always when I was driving my car. I don't know if it was the stress of driving or you're late or whatever. Some weird stimulation from, you know, maybe your whole body and your brain and the road. What was it from, the speed or the Coke? The Coke, usually. And, I, you know, you're up a couple days and, and probably no food and, and you're tired. And I, I don't know, that's what, that's what used to happen to me. It scared the bedeezes out of me because uh, I woke up like two days later in the Aspen Valley Hospital, didn't even know what happened. You know, I had a couple girlfriends at the time. They're both in the room waiting for me to wake up and arguing. That's what woke me up in the hospital. You mean you were dating two women and they were of both course, there? Of course. And my sister Tina was there too. And they're arguing about who should be there when I wake up. You know, they were, they were all there when I woke up. So I just shut my eyes again because it, it seemed like a really bad scene. So at that point, were you just like, I'm the legend of Aspen, like with, <laughs> you know, pounds of Coke and three girlfriends and whatever? It, it, it really. Because I can, I met you. You you seem like an incredibly humble person, but I imagine you got the shit kicked out of you to get here. I did, I did, and and I, you know, I don't want to sound like uh, at all like you know the rich kid that because really it's true, but I don't want to sound that way. The rich kid that was afforded all these opportunities and treatment centers and let's help him one more time and you know because my dad lived in Aspen, Colorado, and he also owned the major hotels there. He was the biggest employee. He was a hotelier? Yeah, he owned the Aspen Club, the Giron, all these big hotels. And uh, so he was the biggest employer in the whole town. So anywhere I went, everybody knew me. It's just a small town then, and it's still a small town, but, you know, there's no more millionaires there. The billionaires have pushed the millionaires out, wow. literally. Right. I think my sister's the only one left that's, you know, that can afford a home there. And uh, so... Anyway, so he what was living underneath his umbrella. Was, what, what, was, was, what was the money draw to Aspen? Just beautiful skiing. Like, was it always a money town? It wasn't in the late 70s, 80s. It, it was a money town, but then the celebrity, my father owned the Aspen Club, and they started doing the celebrity tennis festival, like Dallas versus, uh, what was it, the, the other show that was uh, the series. Dynasty? Dynasty versus Dallas, you know, at the Aspen Club. And McEnroe was there partying like an animal and just a whole host of people. Uh, Jack Nicholson lives in that town and even so back then. Is so. it hard for you to live down this rich kid reputation? Because, it I mean, it shouldn't be. I mean, like I used to, Chris, the, the guy who started the show with me, he came from some money and I would mercilessly make fun of him for it. But like not, you know, it was just a thing. It just doubled down on my shame because people kind of looked at me like, what a dumbass, you know, like his dad's got all this stuff. He mentors. I've got more of my friends that were mentored by my father that still live in that town that are hugely wealthy that came there out of school with nothing, you know, to ski and and they went to work for my dad. And, and here's the kid that really should be doing that and didn't keeps pissing it away, keeps going to get high. Well, you're you're a classic addict. I mean, yeah, like yeah, yeah. I feel like I, I didn't ask the right people the right questions or <laughs> do the right things or follow the right path either. So I can relate to that yeah. a lot. Yeah. So so when when does uh when does it become 
obvious that you're fucked? Is it the seizures? Like when does when does it become obvious that Diddy's got a fucking major problem? <laughs> Not it, a bitty it, problem. It really started uh, that grandma seizure I had on the Fourth of July with some girl that I, you know, met the night before or something. So I wake up in the hotel room, uh, the hospital room. My sister's there, and these two girls, and there's like a, a verbal argument going on. And the next thing I knew, I was at the Aspen, they call it the ARU, which is the Aspen Recovery Unit. It was the only treatment center in Aspen at the time. And that was my first exposure to recovery. And that was 1986. So it's a long time ago. I went there twice. A lot of these treatment centers I went to twice, you know, because I'm sort of friendly with them now. So I, like, would go back. And, and, and so my story is such that I wanted to get sober but I had too many of my own ideas in my head about what was good for me when I got out. You know, like for instance, these. What is this writing of this four step? How is that really going to help me? What I really need? Because I'm in a pickle right now. You know, I've got a wife mad at me. I've got the judge mad at me. I've got everybody mad at me. I get in these legal entanglements. So what I really need is fifty grand and a good lawyer. Not that'll, a that, four step. Right. That'll, <laughs> that'll solve my problem. Yeah, yeah. So it was always, I always had a money problem. I had, there was money there, you know, but I just couldn't reach it, you know, because I couldn't stay straight enough or be smart enough to learn from my father what he was willing to teach me. But no, you, but that's, you were a drug yeah. addict and you were, and you wanted to do what you wanted to do. But why do you think in 1986 you, you wanted sobriety at all? Like what, I remember when I first, I mean, like the first time I went to treatment, I just like ran out of heroin. You know what I mean? And I, 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 I couldn't afford any. I, I didn't have anything. I was sick and I needed to lick my wounds. And I wasn't like I'm dying to leave and use, but I was dying to leave and use. You know, like how you, you talk about in 1986 recovery, like you wanted it. Did you really want it? I think I wanted out of the pickle I was in more than I wanted the recovery. So if the first step reads, you know, I was power, we were powerless over alcohol and drugs and our lives have become unmanageable, the second part of the first step always superseded the first part. So the first part was sort of a theory you all had, but the second part was real. I had documents in front of me that said I was screwed. You were on, so, manageability <laughs> was real and power was It was, was so real. real. And the other part was a theory, you know, and I sort of, so I, I was really good at giving you a sponsor that I would pick a figurehead in the meeting that I could say, oh, he's my sponsor. But really it was about posing. I was posing because I was just looking to get out of trouble. And then I would get, and sometimes it would take a couple years to get out of my kind of trouble, and sometimes it would take a lot more than that, as you'll as you'll hear later. But I, I would get out of trouble. The heat would come off, and then I would let me go see if I can drink like other men. And every time I'd end up in the same spot, you know, it might take a few months, a year at most, or something, but I always ended up at the same spot, not the same spot, a worse spot, clearly, because like it progressive always, right. always got worse. So 86, what's happening? 86, I go to treatment. I get out. Uh, my father had just bought the Hotel Jerome. So he opened the bar to the whole town for like a week. Open bar. Just to get rid of all the alcohol. It was the, sort of the oldest staple bar in the whole town. Been there 100 years. I don't, you know, they hadn't closed in like forever. So he opened the bar to the whole town. And, uh, of course, I... Uh, 
wasn't drinking. I had just got out of treatment. So a difficult, a difficult predicament to be in. Exactly. So at the end of that, no, I had already relapsed during that whole, like it was just a matter of weeks when I got out of that place that I'd relapsed. But my dad, I'm hiding the fact that I'm drinking again. And so he says, I got a job for you. I want you to take the Suburbans, go down and all the leftover wine that's in the restaurant and the bar and the liquor. I want you to load it all up into boxes and I want you to put it in my garage, you know? And, uh, so could there be a wor- the, the only worst job you could have gotten is like, <laughs> I have this warehouse full of cocaine and I want you to shovel it into this U-Haul trailer. It's like, how, it why insane. would he think that you should be in charge? Did you ever blame him? No. If that was no. my, I blame my dad on a daily basis and he didn't do anything like that. I spent some years blaming my dad. Well, the you know, wine run I, wasn't the smartest move. I know. My stepmother said that to him. What, <laughs> what was, what was he, th- what are you thinking, Dick? It's like a Dick? test. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like you failed my well, test. Well, I'll tell you, that's how my father said goodbye to alcohol. It was just one day he had a bottle of vodka in the front seat, I think. He's driving his old Tornado down the road with a pack of Marlboros, threw the two out the window, went to jogging and running and, and turned his whole life around from that point on. That was in the late, early, early 70s, you know. And so um, I think he's always thought to himself, he's sort of laughed at these treatment centers, like, why don't you just do like I did? You know, just throw it out the window and quit. Because he wasn't really an alcoholic. Well, either that or he became, he took work in his career and, and he's over the top with, you know, I don't want to call it workaholism, you know, because but he's he found an extremely a, productive man. That's he's alive. He's alive. He's, you think alive. he's, he's not going to listen to this though. Is he? <laughs> I kind of hope not. But no, I have a 16 year old brother. He married a, a young lady uh, when he was 71 and they had, so I have a bi- biological brother who's 16 years old, Miles yeah, Butera, who's a great kid. I, I believe you. Um, <laughs> it lives in Aspen. The, the question is, it's like, when somebody like, I mean, there's a story of my great grandfather who like he drank a lot and, and he went to Passover one year in the Catskills and and uh, he for he they you know everyone got dressed up so they go into the box of where he keeps his shoes and instead of his shoes being there there's a bottle of whiskey and they say Billy you bring the whiskey and you forget your shoes <laughs> and supposedly that was the last time my great grandfather ever drank. Ever drank now too. I mean who knows if. Uh, you know, if your dad or my my sweet Zaidi was actually an alcoholic or not, but uh, him trusting you to deliver all this fucking alcohol is insanity, and uh, and, and so where where does it go from there? Where does it go from there? Like when you uh, got out of the treatment, you, did you run I, to coke or just yeah? The I booze? ran back to coke, and and I'll tell you what happened was uh, I like I said I'd get myself in these pickles, and I had a friend sleeping on my couch from Albert Lee, Minnesota. And he uh, was sleeping on my couch. I said, Mark, you got to get a place. You got to get a place. So we're looking for a place in Aspen for him. And I drive him to the first place that, you know, we answered the ad. Guy answers the door and he says, what's up, guys? Come on in. You want a line? And that was how that whole landlord-tenant relationship started. And, and that be- grew into a horrific thing because they figured out who my father was. And they... Uh, they decided they they had gone to Vail to pick up a batch of cocaine, so they showed up in a Porsche 911 in the middle of the winter in a parking lot in Vail, Colorado, to meet these guys for 
to switch money for cocaine, and the guys pulled a gun on them. They took their money, took their shoes, threw the keys in the ski in the in the uh, snowbank, and split. So here comes these two guys that we're renting a house from. Not me, my friend Mark's renting a room there uh, in the early 80s. And they show up with no shoes. They had gotten in a bar fight on the way. They're upset, like they had just lost 100K that they were putting out for however much. And they, and they figured out who I was, and I was the answer, because they owed somebody that money. So they grabbed me, they took me to Denver by gunpoint, and kept me for a week. So they kidnapped you. They kidnapped How me. old were you? I was, God knows, 22 or something like that. So like the front page of the papers, no lie. You know, look at the archives. It says, hotel magnet's son kidnapped in drug ring. You know, so. It's not far from the truth, though, is it? No, no, it was, it was horrific. And, uh, and that went on. Uh, that was, that story or a story about the kidnapping was on the front page of the paper for 18 days straight. So how long were you kidnapped Just for, for like a week. And, and what was it like? It did wasn't bad because they were Alpha, giving me drugs Did the you whole see time. the movie Alpha Dog? I didn't. There's a kid that's kidnapped in Alpha Dog, and he's like a virgin. He has sex with two girls at the same time, and he smokes weed the first time. And, <laughs> but they kill him in Alpha Dog. Right, you when know. they kept banging that gun against my head and said, call him, call him, we want our money, you know? And so... I, would, I was like, my dad's not going to pay you. You know, I didn't say clowns, but my dad's not about to. I don't know if you saw the series uh, that's on Hulu right now called um, Trust. No. Oh, it's it's good. good? Yeah, yeah, it's so good. Right, it, I'll see Trust, you see Alpha Dog. <laughs> okay, very good. Uh, the story of a kidnapping of, uh, yeah. So, um, so how scary was it, though? It... It was a little scary at first, and then I got kind of used to it because they were giving me Coke. They also had a big bag of Coke the whole time. Were you so, just doing Coke, or was there alcohol, weed, Coke, pills, I what? I think I probably was drinking beer or something, and, and they took me to this guy's house in Denver. So I was out of Aspen in this little house in Denver, like locked in the bedroom, and then every once in a while they'd come in and you know, make a phone call. And uh, so I called, instead of calling my father, I called a buddy of mine, and who knew of these guys? He knew that Mark and I had gotten mixed up. Mark rented a house from these clowns. And uh, so I, it was like four in the morning. Larry answered the phone and I said, Larry. And they're listening on the other line. And I said, Larry, uh, I'm in trouble with those guys and I, I need money. He says, what do you mean you need money? I said, the hundred, and he grabs the phone out of my hand. He said, this is a matter of your friend's life or death, okay? Are you able to get $100,000? And Larry's like, it's 4 o'clock in the morning. And Lala gives him a story. And he said, if you give me a, a little bit, because I knew Larry could. He was dating a very wealthy woman in Aspen. And so uh, maybe they didn't have all that money. But Larry said, yes, I'll be there. And so at a certain time, which was just about an hour or so later, uh, out in front of Larry's house on the corner on the West End, uh, Larry was standing out there at the time, you know, like with his pajamas on and a gym bag. And here we come pulling up in what turned out to be a stolen vehicle. Uh, and, and Larry had called the police, the, the, the Aspen Valley police and the city police. So, uh, you know, he was just standing there all alone when we pulled up. But every cop that came out of the woodwork and they busted. So it's like guys. a movie. Yeah. And they busted these guys and then it went to court and my addiction got worse. Hold yeah. up, though. Like, there's my dad's 10 phones. Hold on. Where's that? See, I would imagine if I got kidnapped and I was held in a room 
Coke would make me very nervous. Like I'd be, I would be very uncomfortable to be people having a gun on me with Coke. I would need like heroin or pills or <laughs> something. Like, wasn't that very stressful? Doesn't the Coke make it more stressful? Or were you guys like listening to music and hanging out? Like, what, did, what were you doing? Yeah, there was no music going on. Uh, but I was doing my best to become these guys' friend. Okay, so you just hung out with them. Was it just like doing lines or were you smoking Yeah, the it? one guy was nuts. He was from Colombia. And the other guy was just an American straight. His brother Idiot. was a lawyer in Aspen. And that's, by the way, the house that he rented my buddy, the room in, was a big, massive, you know, like seven bedroom house that he's renting rooms out. It wasn't even his house. His brother, who was a lawyer in Aspen, had the house in probate. And his brother must have mentioned to him, you know, that house is sitting up on on uh, Red Mountain uh, in probate, you know, still. And he's like, well, what's going on? You know, oh, no, it just sits there. So he went and had a locksmith come up and change the locks and turn the power on and started renting rooms. And, and so he's renting rooms to a house he doesn't even own. Well, how crazy is it to think the solution is kidnapping? <laughs> I know. Oh, these guys were out of, they were eating quaaludes. Quaaludes were still around, yeah. I remember, because they were, and I was never into downers back then. So a quaalude would put me on my ass. I'd do it just because everybody did them, but they, they weren't my thing. See, I, if I was kidnapped, I'd be like, just give me 20 quaaludes and wake me up when this is over. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, but all I ever wanted was more Coke. Did your dad get mad at you? during the, like, I mean, it's kind of sad that you have to go to Larry and, you don't, and your dad, who has endless fucking money, you can't go to him. Yeah, well, let's put it this way. I didn't go to him. Because you're like, he's already, I'm supposed to be sober. I just went through treatment. <laughs> you know, I'm in the middle of a kidnapping. I'm in Denver and I got, uh, uh, you know, a head full of cocaine. And so, uh, yeah, I was always, you know, there was a lot of shame all these years because I was always doing the stupid thing, you know. And how do I get mixed up with these guys? I would always, my therapist said to me about a year ago, we were finishing up and she said, Richard, uh, when are you going to stop painting the red flags in your life? When are you going to stop painting them pink? Because there's been red flags. You know, my higher power has been trying to show me the right way. But like, I'm like, it didn't, that didn't involve money or, or coolness or whatever. That, that involved a, a, spo a real sponsor, not like just one I could call my sponsor. And so I, I always picked the easier, softer way. What seemed like the easier, softer way actually turned out to be not the case. And so I dodged the 12 steps for 30 years. What does painting the red flags pink mean exactly? In other words, the red flag comes up like the girl, you probably shouldn't date this girl. You know, like she's as codependent as they come. I find the most codependent woman in the room like in a minute, if she's cute and codependent, let's sign her up, you know, and, 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 and those end in disaster. Like taking each other hostage kind exactly. of thing. Exactly. So it's like two trash trucks heading on, head on, on the 95, you know. So when, when a red flag becomes pink, it's like, it makes it cute as opposed to like dangerous. It's like this. What could go wrong? Right. How bad could it be? She's cute. We're good. We both have jobs. Let's do it, you know, and let's fall in love. Or this would happen with business partners, too. Like, there would be red flags. Like, eh, I don't really like how he treated that contractor. You know, like, he wants to screw. The, he doesn't want... He's got all this money. And I, I just went through this in Florida. You know, guy's got 100 million bucks, but he doesn't want to pay for his jacuzzi to be fixed. And the people worked on it for two and a half weeks. And he's like, fuck him. It's like Donald Trump syndrome. 
Yeah, and I'm like, and, and but yet I'm about to dive in deep with this guy. And, and it's I'm, like, yeah, he's uh, probably okay. Yeah, he's probably all right. His dollars involved. I helped the guy get sober, and he's like, Rich, your family now. Let's 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 open up a series. Let's of make some money. Houses. Yeah. So he gave me an open checkbook, and I bought four houses right before COVID, and uh, and everything was good. And I showed the the agreements, the partnership agreements. I'm 49 percent partner. A lot of sweat equity, I might add. But I I, I faxed them or or sent them, emailed them to my dad my lawyer, everybody to read, and everybody sort of turned one cheek up and said, well, sure sounds nice, 49%, you know, the houses are worth four and five, now a million because of COVID. These houses doubled in value in Florida. Anything three, two with a pool is double now. So the guy kind of, because of COVID, he kind of looked at like, how can I wiggle out of these agreements? Whereas another guy that was an honest, you know, straight shooter would have thought, God, I'm glad Rich picked these houses. You right, know, you know, and so he wiggled out of the agreement, and I realized that I walked away from the little closing that we had with an unsigned copies of the agreement. So he put them in a Manila envelope, and I walked out, put them in my file cabinet when I got home, and never looked at them again until COVID started happening. Him and I started having some disagreements. Let me pull that file out and look at it, and the copies I had at my house were I signed them, but he didn't on purpose. So, um, I didn't even, you know, I just didn't. I don't. I didn't see him coming. And like that, that was the the pinking of something that was obviously a red flag. Yeah, that there was other stuff before that that I should have said. Even my therapist, who knew him, said, "Are you sure? Are you sure you want to get involved with that guy? Yeah, yeah. Look what we're doing. La 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 la. You know, blinded by the signs, money. Dollar right. signs. Yeah, yeah. My focus was always, you know, I had this incredible fear of economic insecurity." because I was never getting along with my father, so I wasn't going to saddle up with him and become a multimillionaire. So I'm scrambling to survive. So let's go back. You jump, you jump 40 years into the future <laughs> from uh, post-kidnapping, yeah. and you, you were saying that after that kidnapping, kid, kidnapping, that's when the addiction really jumped into another gear. Well, I remember that I was... Uh, well, the judge, during the, there, was a, there was a long trial with these kidnappers, and I had to testify, you know, and uh, so that was the first time on the other side of the courtroom. Courtroom, right. and, uh, you and can I'm, be I'm trouble a little nervous, and I'm like, these guys are, you know. And so the judge decided I shouldn't live in Aspen, so I went back to Pennsylvania. Why the court? And then every time I had a court appearance, Colorado would fly me out, and I'd go to court, and then I'd fly back. Well, this time, and I always try to schedule a whole week out of this, so I could go skiing and see my buddies and visit my girlfriends and whatever. And so that's what happened. I went out there. I went skiing the day before, skiing bumps, and, like, got launched off a bump, landed straight on my back, and was, like, aching in pain. The night before I'm supposed to be in court at 9 a.m., I eat, like, two big painkillers. And, again, I'm not, like, a, an opiate guy at the time. So they, like, wipe me out, and I probably drink a whole bottle of vodka on top of them, and they call, the DA calls... And says courts at eight, not nine, and I'm like not even in the shower yet, uh, and so I'm like, on, I remember being on the stand in Aspen with these two characters across from me, and 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 my hair's still wet, like you know, and I'm like, and the judge looked at me and said, "What is the matter with you know the?" And so they sent me to treatment, so off I went to treatment in New Jersey. Was that the second treatment? That would have been the second treatment. Was that the Alina Lodge first no, run? No, no, this was another place. Uh, that How I, many treatments did you go to? 
Uh, I'm embarrassed to say. Don't be embarrassed. It went on for, you got to remember, this went on for like four decades. You know, because treatment centers were my trap doors. They, you know, I'd back my drink myself into a corner, get kidnapped into the corner, pull a string and, and drop in treatment. It's like everything's okay. Right. So they were my fallout shelters. So um, I spent, I had to figure it out for Banyan. Uh, I had to, f- that I was in ch- inpatient treatment for 1,641 days. Wow. 1,600 so, days is what? Like, uh, well, you got to remember, three of those treatment centers were year-long treatment centers. So, Alina, you know, Alina is a year long, so I did that place twice. And then I was in federal prison, and they have an inpatient treatment to get out early uh, to get your sentence reduced just by a fraction because the feds aren't much on giving time up. But I'm jumping ahead again. I don't want to miss any of the good stuff. I want to be like, <laughs> why would you go to federal prison? But I bet there's like five ridiculous stories between well, here and federal prison. Yeah. What so give us so you get out of treatment in New Jersey? Well, I, I I couldn't I couldn't hack it, so I had somebody come pick me up, and I bailed out. It was like a lockdown unit. It was called Forest Hill, Far, Forest Hill, I think. Uh, and you not split. Forest Hill, for, something. Uh, it's still there today. Uh, but anyway, so I had a buddy come bail me out of there. You know, you had to go like AMA, super AMA, because the court wanted me there too. And I went back to my mom's house, and I just waited for the next court date, and. Uh, and I went back, and they were sentenced to, uh, I think, ten years, fifteen, and then ten years. Did you ever prison. see those guys again? Funny thing is, I went to a, a, a marital workshop that was a weekend workshop. It was one of those deals that back in the eighties, because I was living there with my wife, and I'm jumping ahead again. But we go in, and, and it's the Friday night where everybody meets. You know, it's a it's a workshop, so you go around and introduce yourself. We're in this church in Aspen, and. And the girl says, my name's Cheryl Letterer. And I was like, oh, no, that's his sister, right? Because their whole family lived there. And I thought, oh, my God, she's going to kill me, right? Well, she figures out who I am, and I figure out who she is. She comes up to me at the first cigarette break, uh, or we'll call it a water break, and, uh, and gives me this big hug and says, I can't believe you're here. And I was like, don't you want to kill me, your brother? You know? She goes, do you know that since Eddie went to jail, my whole family ended up getting sober. He got sober in jail, then my dad got sober, then I got sober, la, 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 la. And it all started with you. Incredible. Yeah, yeah. So she wasn't mad at all. We became buddies. Did you ever see Eddie? I never saw him. And then meanwhile, are you fucked at that point? I'm in bad shape. Like, I'm, my drinking has, has uh, excelled to where, like, now I'm drinking massively. Like, I'm just, like, it's not uncommon for me to crush a 24-pack and then get deep into another 24-pack. So, like, to drink 40 beers in a day. Isn't weird. Isn't weird. And my stomach and my throat, I would drink. and Like, if I didn't have drugs, I would have to consume so much alcohol to, to sort of balance the scales there that now I started, like, bleeding at the esophagus. So if I was in a hotel room by myself for a couple of days, it got ugly, you know? And, and so my drinking got worse, and I, you know... And it was Coke still. Coke and, yeah, Coke and alcohol. And so I, uh, I ended up going to a treatment center in Pennsylvania. I guess I shouldn't mention the names. Karen's? No, White Beer Run. Okay, I think I've heard of that one. 90 days. And I got out, and I was real serious. Now, a lot of times I'm real serious. Like, I 
I want to how old are you at that up, point? But I just don't get it. Like I just there's something I don't even know what it means to be honest with myself. But I, yeah, I want to be sober, you know. So I do I do the deal. I go to meetings. I'm a meeting maker, and I get out of White Deer Run 90 days, and I said I want more. So I flew to uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul and went to Hazleton. How old were you at that time? I'm like 25. Right, you're 25. You have this ridiculous. Uh, drug problem, alcohol problem. You're in treatment over and over again, and you're like, I want to get better, but you have no idea what it looks like. How frustrating was it for you at that point? Or it hadn't even, hadn't even, you know, you've been so frustrated since then that it didn't even rate. I. It's a good question because the frustration I think is that fear that you're not only posing for the whole world, but you're also posing for yourself. Like you want to believe what you. You, you want to believe that you want to be sober, but some little voice in the back of your head says, you know, if I was in Costa Rica living on the beach and I had everything made, I would no more be sober than the man on the moon. You know, so therefore, I don't really want to be sober. I'm, not, I'm there for the second part of the first step. I'm there to get all Unmanageability. These, yeah, I got to solve all these problems. But yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I'd okie dokie. And I was a good okie dokie, or, you know, like, you know, and, and a sponsor, yeah, yeah, he's doing great, you know, but I never really sat down and wrote the traditional fourth step. Like, and that was still the thing in your, in your way. No fourth step, no fifth step. No fourth step. Right. No fourth step. I wrote a life story. You have to write a life story at Alina Lodge. So I've written two of those, and they were, you know, sort of like this, but it's not the fourth step. It's not, you know, all the resentments. So uh, I, uh, I didn't want to do the work. It's the same thing in school. When the teacher said, read the chapter, then answer the questions at the end of the chapter and be ready for the morning. Well, I had other things to do after school. It was hardly reading that chapter about George Washington. I just didn't even care. So I would read the questions on the way on the bus to school in the morning, read the questions and search for the answers. Me too. Yeah, I mean, and, but that's how I in did the, the reading, program. In the reading. Uh-huh. You'd look for the answers while you read it. So if you give me a word search today, right. I can smoke. You don't even right. have to give me the words. I can find the words. It's, like, that's some it, kind of built into manipulation, <laughs> right? It's weird, though, because you keep talking about this fourth step being the the thing between you and wellness. I didn't have the, the traditional experience. I did my fourth step twice and, and, you know, obviously my fifth step twice. I didn't find it to be that much. I mean, like for me, six and seven, for some reason, like actually getting ready to give up character defects was more important to me. I think it's just because I never shut up about all the fucking resentments I had and fears. And and I think I don't think it was pivotal for me in the sense that you're thinking it was. It was pivotal that I finally became willing. Right. So, and, right. and there was the work involved. I got this big graph paper and I put all the columns on one pager and page after page after page. And I switched sponsors midstream and I, could, I got fired by my sponsor. I was completely insulted because I go to meetings. I would meet him at meetings. I would leave work, go to meet him. And, uh, and he called me and said, I can't do this anymore. And he kept giving me a hard time about the characters that I would allow into my life. They were sober. It was the halfway house guy. He's like, why are you messing with this guy? I said, well, we're opening these. Can't you see here? We're opening these halfway houses. Go online. Look. You know, and, uh, and he's like, but I didn't work my first year. I said, well, I don't have that choice. Okay. Like, I have to make a living. 
and this guy trusts me and we're doing this deal. And then plus I have these other projects going on, but that's all you're doing is working. And, and I was like, yeah, isn't that great? You know, cause that was my mentality. That's how I always got sober before I, I just. And to some extent being busy is a great tool in recovery. It's just balance is the ultimate tool. Yeah. Balance and I were never really, you know. So what happens after Hazelden? So you keep going back to this shady dealing you just did in Florida. This, <laughs> this thing is fucking flashing in your head. Well, at Hazelton, I, I want to get to the brothel in Philadelphia uh, and the fucking, <laughs> fucking the domino story and the, yeah. and the meth and all, you know. Um, at Hazelton, when you get out of Hazelton, you're left the choice to go to what they call the Fellowship Club, which is in downtown St. Paul. It's the old Schmidt Brewery. They bought it and made it into essentially a, a halfway house and a, a co-ed halfway house. So I'm in there and I'm Mr. Serious and and all that and uh there was women there and you know i i'm scared to look at them twice you know because if i look at them twice it's you know like it's You're over yeah. right right so but there was like you know a couple girls so i got a little corporate job working for a, a student loan company in downtown st paul with a suit and tie and now i'm thinking you know, i'm like on year two and uh and I'm coming down the elevator of a high-rise downtown St. Paul. It's snowing outside. It's in the middle of the winter. And the, the door, I'm the only one in the elevator. It opens up. And there's this girl on the 11th floor. And she says, Rich. Like Rich with a su big southern accent. Rich. And I can't remember her name. She's from the Fellowship Club. But I haven't seen her in, like, say, eight months or whatever. And I barely knew her then. She goes, it's Donna from Baton Rouge. You know, and I said, hi, Donna. You know, and Donna and I went to the bar. Needless to say. Right. And How much time had you had at that point? Oh, like a year, maybe a year and a half. So how does a year and a half evaporate with one southern fried ridge? Because I think it was sort of like some other relapses. Like you you get together with somebody that you know is about to, right. you know, they're already It's a pass. Dead. It's like you don't have to think you're, about it because you're with this person. Same thing happened with Domino years later. You know, like we, I just, we both knew right away. Otherwise, I wouldn't have flown to Los Angeles. And so, and I ended up carrying her home in that blizzard to my house, which was supposed to be a sober living environment. It wasn't a halfway house or anything. It was just somebody. So uh, we ended up getting a place together. We never slept apart again and got a place together and she got pregnant. And I thought, and she's from a Southern conservative family in Baton Rouge, so I married her. And there's way more to that story, but... Uh, Is there anything horrible that we should horrible, know? What happened in horrible. the story? Well, again, she's from a very conservative family. Uh, Dad's big CEO of the biggest hospital in Louisiana and yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and she won't call them to tell them she like ran away from home even though she was all the way up in minnesota she wouldn't call she wouldn't answer their calls did she know you, she, how your how established she, your family was and that was something she that, knew some of that yeah and she got pregnant and now she was beside herself she can't call her dad up and say look not only am i not married but now i'm pregnant and plus i'm drinking again and she was into she was a nurse so she was into dope and and so she didn't know what to do. So she said, I want to have an abortion. And I'm thinking, we're both like in our late 20s now. Uh, both have good jobs. And I don't, like I just didn't want to go there. And so I disagreed with her. And I said, I put it up for adoption, but I'm, I just don't, I don't, I'm not into. 
killing this baby. Now, this is her decision, as today's woman would say. But I had a say in the matter. I, I felt I did. And uh, so behind my back, she called my stepfather uh, in Pennsylvania, and they had this little dialogue going, and he wired her money to go have the abortion behind my back. So now she's got the money in her pocket. It's the 4th of July. They have a big parade in St. Paul, and we're drinking. She's drinking. She's pregnant. She's four and a half months pregnant now. And she uh, grabs my buddy's keys, who worked for a pharmaceutical company, drove to Minneapolis, went to his house, consumed a massive amount of pills, pregnant, in a garden apartment with a metal door. front door is a metal door, locked calls us from his landline. We have no idea where she is. We thought she got lost in the parade or something. We're searching all over for her. She finally calls and says, Rich, I'm taking myself and I'm taking this baby and I'm out of here. And I, I don't want to live anymore. And, and hangs up the phone. This is before caller ID. This is in 1988. Right. So if there was caller ID, I didn't have it. And so I'm like freaking out and... Uh, so I called 911, and I said, look, the last call that came in was my fiance, by the way, uh, who said she's going to kill herself. So they traced the last call, boom, 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 and they read the address out. And I said, you know, 911 6th Avenue, Minneapolis. My buddy's sitting there. He goes, that's my house. So we, we knew right away she had grabbed his keys off. Right. The, so that's what happened. And they went, busted the door down put her on dialysis and a life support and saved her life and the baby's life. So I thought, well, how, what kind of shape is this baby going to be in? I mean, it was, it was, she was in a coma. Oh my it, God. Yeah, it was really bad. So he said, well, our experience with this, this uh, newborn can be either that he's perfectly fine or even better than he would have been, or he's messed up, but he's not, you know, and so he's, He's better than fine. Thomas is a captain in the army and married. I'm a grandfather. And yeah. Nice. So, so what happened? You, you wound up staying with her? You went to New Orleans we tried. with her? We tried. Her and I, uh, we tried for years. We, we then moved, uh, we moved to San Francisco. So by 89, he was, in 1989, he was like a, barely a year old. I'm working for a company, uh, a sales company, living in Fisherman's Wharf when the earthquake hit. So I'm watching the World Series with my like eight month old baby on the bed playing hooky from work and, and here comes the, the earthquake. So earthquakes and, and hurricanes like Katrina who I looked at right in the eye and other stuff like that. It's, you know, for addicts like us, that's child's play. We, we, love, we love storms because we love drama. You know? good, so that was great. It's a it. distraction that's not us. Yeah, plus I didn't have to go to work for a week and we drank red wine and because all the grocery stores were closed in Frisco. You couldn't get food, and so I stayed at my boss's house, and we drank wine and cheese for a week until we could go back to work. Were you on, like, a hiatus from Coke? I was at that time, but my wife had taken to speed. However, she was getting it from a doctor or something. She was the nurse. And there were more of those candy-like, suck them off the pill and that snort you, them. That you did when you were 12 or 13. Yeah, they, they seemed very much, you know, they had the sexual component to them. They had to stay up for days. We'd drive across country, all that. So I all of a sudden I had my speed back. I can't remember the details about where she got that, but she had it, and I loved it. And the kid was all right. The kid was all right. Considering. Considering. And so, and, and at what point does that marriage get 
destroyed? Uh, we, we moved from Frisco to Denver and end up in Aspen. I'm now working for my father. Uh, and that's a whole whirlwind. What were you doing for him? Sales at the Aspen Club. I got a call from the guy who ran, who was president of the Aspen Club. My dad was in the Greek Isles or somewhere, and he was in Fiji for an extended amount of time, which is a whole other story. But he called me and he said, hey, Diddy, we need somebody to be head of membership sales at the Aspen Club. What made him think that he could trust you? I guess because I had this other, I had opened this other business up in Denver, and that's a whole nother deal. But uh, from a man I met at the Jerome Hotel at the bar, as a matter of fact, and and he said, "Come to San Francisco, work for me." And I did. And he said, "If you do well, I'll open your. You can open your own distribution center up in Denver." So I did well, you know. So when in a pickle, uh, I can push myself to do well, when, especially when it comes to sales. As an addict, that's all we do is manipulate people sell, into, sell ourselves we have to sell ourselves give, give me my job back let me back in the door i can so do it, it this time constant sales. Right. so get, get ask me to sell a car and I, you know can have no wheels on it and i'll sell it to you you know and because that's what i do best and call it manipulation call it survival survival so you get back to aspen and what's your life like uh i get back to aspen i'm nervous as shit because i I know there's some members of the Aspen Club that weren't real wild about this. They they knew of my history. You remember we, we've had newspaper stuff. You know, all kind of. It wasn't like a quiet visit I had there for the time I was in Aspen. So there was some people that put up some friction about me having that job, and I and I took that real personally. And it was like, you know, like real. And I still take things personally. Sure. Like, why can't I do that? I, I take yeah. things personally still. My girlfriend can ask me to take out the trash, and I take it personally. You know, what I mean? not as much. Obviously. My wife asked me to start the car in the morning for my daughter, and I'm like, why should I do it? <laughs> <laughs> like, we're so yeah, we're it's thirty so good. degrees. Yeah. I got a twelve year old girl, and my wife's like, Dave, you're gonna go start the car, and I'm thinking you should go fucking do it. Yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's sick. That's yeah. not well. Yeah. I spent so many years as a victim. That when you propose something to me, that's you know this is happening to me. Like you have to go start the car. Like life is happening to me, right? As opposed to for me. But and in my I, mind, I'm like, well, if she would ask nicely, I wouldn't even think about <laughs> yeah, it. But I'm, nice. fucked. I'm, I'm fucked. I'm fucked. It's like just even hear you say that, it makes me realize <laughs> that I. It's crazy. Yeah. So when when does uh? Because it seems like you were coasting around for a long time, drinking, kind of having this kid, but not fucking pedal to the metal madness like when does it turn right the, the and 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 i'd often try to pick like the marriage and the child thing i think that was like my answer you know like this will slow me down and i'll, I'll stabilize really, right and and uh and plus her parents they they wanted to like me and they were such nice people that i wanted to impress them you know so i i really wanted to be her dad's buddy so there was an incentive for me to try to do well. And him and I tried to be buddies over the years. And, uh, and so, and I, and I didn't want to continue disappointing my father and my sisters and Tina and, you know, and uh, so I, there was a huge part of me that wanted to be sober. I just didn't know why I kept falling on my face. I really, 
because I, there was more of me that wanted to be sober than not. But I'd get my little feelings hurt, buckle at the knees and go drink, you know? And then my sponsor would be like, well, did you ever think about calling me first? Hell no, I'm not calling you, you know, because you might talk me out of it. And I've already made the decision right. to drink. You're the last person. In fact, I right. turned my phone off. Right. You know? Of course. Like when I when I used to want to get sober and I would go to a meeting and they'd be like, well, call us if you want to use. I'd be like, I'm not calling you. I, I know who I'm going to call. It's not you. <laughs> yeah, it's not you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you go, it's like you have this vision in your mind of what you would like your life to be, but it isn't what it, you know, you're still an alcoholic and a drug addict. But, uh, you know, just the legend I've heard of you, like crazy, crazy, crazy shit happens. When, when does it come in? Like, I mean, the kidnapping is pretty terrible. And, uh, you know, this, this story... Isn't... We're talking about... We're still in the 80s. Like, and, and it just continued to get worse. And the numbers got bigger. The, the hurt got bigger. The, the, the legalities got far bigger so tell me when the acceleration happens and don't worry about the time i, I think yeah. this is all worth talking uh, about so the 90s my uh my sister my second youngest sister uh passed away of cancer so how old was she she was 24 years old that's horrible I'm she sorry. was like the angel of the family you know everybody loved Annie and she had more friends than anybody, you know, and she, she did everything right. She finished school. She got engaged. You know, the rest of us are like getting eloping and going to, well, my sister didn't go to treatment, but nobody did things in a very traditional way in my family. It was a lot of dysfunction. And, but Annie, it, it looked like we had a winner, you know, and then she was diagnosed with angiosarcoma and it literally ripped at the seams of my entire family, you know, watching my parents go through all that, watch my dad who, you know, had resources, you know, and had the best doctors in the world at his fingertips. And he couldn't save her, couldn't save her. And he could fix every other problem in the world, but he couldn't fix that one. And it was really frustrating for him. And powerlessness is like everywhere. Yeah. So she said to me literally on her deathbed with my son, my wife, my father, I think Tina was in the room. We were in Maryland at a hospital in Maryland, and she said she knew she was going to die. And she said, uh, will you just do me the one favor and just please don't ever drink again? You know. And I said, it's the least I can do for you, Annie. And How much older were you than her? So like four years, five okay. years, something like what that. What are you thinking when you're saying that? How the hell could I hold a promise like that up? Right. Like I just knew, but I think it was it was like somebody asking you to marry them at the Super Bowl. Like I, there was no way, you know. So you I wasn't lying, because I thought, well, this is a pivotal moment in my life. Maybe this will do it. And, by, and you want that to be the story that gets you clean. Yeah, yeah. You yeah, want yeah. that the to be comeback the comeback kid, right, right, you know. Sure. And 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 always wanted to be the comeback kid. Well, um, you are. You are. You are the comeback but, yeah, kid. The problem is I'm not a kid anymore. It doesn't. None of us are. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't a kid then. You know what I'm saying? Right, right, right. No, I wasn't. And uh, so uh, I got in a fight with my father at the funeral because I was drunk. You know, like they had like there was like so many people at this funeral, and Harry Connick Jr. was involved in my sister's life. There was just a huge uh, 
you know, they had a party. She designed the party afterward, after the funeral, where there was, I don't know, at least 500 people there. And we all had a white balloon that we wrote a message on and let them up all at once. And the music she picked, the food she picked, and it was Before around... Before she died, she made these wishes. Yeah, this spectacular house that my mother had on the main line, Philadelphia main line, and a pool and everything. And so you'd go in the boiler room. It was an old barn made into a house, really cool place. And uh, you'd go in the boiler room, and they were just cutting lines in there. And I'd go upstairs, and the, like my mom and my sister are handing out Valiums. You know, this is, this, this, is, this is supposed to be my sister's celebration. But everybody's also pretty torn up. And so. you're supposed to be sober. I'm supposed to be sober. How, and how, I mean, like... I'm the only one in the family that's supposed to be sober, but yet everybody's got a beer in their hand. You know, and I, that always, I always resented that. How can you hold that beer in your hand and tell me I shouldn't drink when you all know as well as I do that we all should stop drinking? You know, I'm not going to say this one's an alcohol. It's not my place. But... It always pissed me off. You can and I can't. How soon after you made the promise to Annie did you have a drink? Her funeral. Right. So, and that was, let's say, two weeks later. And so my father said it to me at the funeral. You lied to your sister on her deathbed. You know? That's a lot to hold up to. It's like, yeah. it's and like I come was, on, Dad. She's gone. She's not going to know. And I and remember now, I'm going in the boiler room getting cocaine, going upstairs, they're handing Valiums out, going outside, drinking a beer at the keg, taking a swig of vodka at the bar. And that went on like all day in the sun, you know. And, and the, the self-hatred is trying to get erased by the substances and, and I it's going on. I loathed myself. You know, right. I just, you know, and so it got worse and worse. I ended up very drunk and, uh, and somehow slept it off and ended up in my car the next day. And decided that I'm, I don't know what to do now. Like, everybody hates me. And so I have a girlfriend in Aspen, and uh, she says, just come out here and be with me. I'll take care of you. And that was like music to my ears. You know, I thought, oh, my God, I've always loved you anyway. I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. And so I, I jump in my car, and I get on the Pennsylvania Turnpike headed west. And I, I have, like, enough money to get there. You know, a couple of credit cards with some money on them and, and a couple hundred bucks. I'm going to make it to Colorado. And so I'm on the Pennsylvania trip. Like, of course, a 12-pack of beer is on the front seat, and I'm drinking them. And, you know, like, boo-hoo in my sister. Like, I never grieved her death. I was polluted. And uh, I pulled over to get gas on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, like, halfway to Pittsburgh. Got gas, and I didn't realize it at the time, but I left my wallet on top of the gas pump. So... Now I get back in the car and I leave. Now my wallet's at one of those rest stops. I don't know which one. And I don't realize it until I get to Pittsburgh and I need gas again. And I go to reach and I'm like, where? I'm looking on the front seat. Where's my wallet? And I'm thinking I'm backtracking. You know, like I'm, I'm not sober, but I'm sober enough to be able to think back about where the frick my wallet is. And I realize it's got to be at one of those rest stations because I only stopped once. You know, like piss and whatever. And... uh so now I'm, I'm in Pittsburgh. I don't know anybody. Philly people don't like Pittsburgh people. So I'm like, we don't, we don't intermix. And I'm like, they're Midwest. and we're Pittsburgh like, are like hicks compared <laughs> to the Philly people. Yeah. You know, yins, where are yins going tonight? And so I'm stuck in Pittsburgh. I've got 80 bucks in my front pocket. It was the only cash I had. And no credit cards, no driver's license, no nothing. And I'm like, and I remembered my one friend from Aspen. I spoke to him just the other day. He lives in Venice now in California. And I... 
I remember he was doing something there, acting or something. So I pulled over, dialed 411 information, and he was he listed. So I went and stayed with him, and I ended up living in Pittsburgh, got married, had another child, bought well, a hold house. Hold up, hold up. You never yeah. made it to Aspen. I never made it to Aspen. So you, ha- you just had a new life in Pittsburgh. Yeah, I got as far as Pittsburgh. So wow. I ended up living there and and just doing large amounts of cocaine and I got this job selling cars and when did the coke come back in or right after the funeral if it was around hey, you know, whoever had it right whenever you know I never said no to that drug you know um I hated that drug like I can never say I hate methamphetamine but I hate opiates I hate cocaine I hate alcohol uh, why don't you hate uh, methamphetamines because it did more destruction than all of those other drugs in my life put together. Um, so why don't you hate that one? I do. I just, I don't, I, I, I have a twisted relationship with methamphetamine. Obviously. Yeah, yeah. Not that I'm, not that I have a desire to go back to it and I've been away from it for years now. Um, but. Uh, it's interesting though. You know, it's interesting that you're, you're like, I hate Coke. I hate uh, opiates, but meth, I don't really hate as much. All right, give me some of that high octane and you know, 98% pure ice, and you take one hit and you thought, you know, and I don't want to glorify it because, you know, like I said, and I don't mean jump ahead, but what I said to the federal judge when he said, Do you have anything to say before he sentenced me? And I had my little spiel of, you know, poor me or whatever, and I didn't mean to do what I did. And uh, this drug, you either end up locked up. Or covered up. There's two ends, you know. And uh, so my best friend ended up locked up or covered up, and I ended up locked up. When's the f- when did you get associated with the 98% pure meth? From uh, in, I went to, uh, I was asked to be, I, well, I, after Pittsburgh, uh, a, lot, a lot happened, but I ended up, Back at Alina Lodge for the second time. For Coke and booze again? For Coke. Real bad this time, though. I was sick. I was, I was in Denver. I had no money. I had lost my business in Aspen. I was the only used car dealer. I had taken on used cars now. I was mis- so I was Aspen Auto Source. I was the only used... I was between the Range Rover dealership and the Jeep dealership. I helped... You know, I, my father helped me buy the real estate, and I had life, you know... By the gonads and uh, super pretty girl, great house. I couldn't. All I had to do was show up to work and to make money. Just suit up and show up, and I'd make money every day. I was the only used car dealer in the whole town, you know, with a lot full of Range Rovers and Jeeps, and and uh, so I relapsed from that. I, I relapsed. Uh, you know, the guy I bought cars from in Denver, I knew he used to be a cocaine dealer. And one day I said, man, throw a couple ounces. And, and he'd ship cars up to me from Denver on car carriers. Throw a couple bags of coke in Were you floor. sober again? Not really. That was post-Alina Lodge. Post-first time Alina Lodge. But not post-second time. So no, you yeah. go from Pitt- when you go from Pittsburgh to Colorado, were you with the family, the new family, or no? Mm-mm. No. So mm. you left the wife and the new yeah, kid? Yeah, that's, yeah she, that's a whole other story. We don't have time for that. How bad did that one go? Uh, she decided that she wanted to monitor lingerie. I came home one night, like we were making money, had everything. She said, Richard, this guy approached me and wants me to model lingerie. I said, I bet he did, you know? 
And I said, we don't need to do that. Like, I don't even, you know, what, let me come to your first shoot, I told her, <laughs> right? She goes, oh, no, I could never do that, like, with you there. I said, you could take your clothes off with 10 men in the room, but not 11, being me. No, I could, I'd be too embarrassed. I said, wait a minute, something doesn't sound right. And that escalated into what turned out to be the end of the relationship. And she went on to be an escort girl, and I left town. And, and uh, story, What happened to that kid? Christian, he lives in Pittsburgh still. And you're and we're buddies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, him and I uh, got much closer later because I continued uh, to write him letters and try to stay in touch with him. My father wanted me to have nothing to do with her or him, mostly her. He, he, he didn't really know much is about him. Is she still alive? She is. She lives somewhere in the state of Virginia. But So he gave her some money and said, go away and never, con like 100K or 150K, go away and never contact my son again. And, and, and never ask him for any money. Here, take this, sign this piece of this paper. This is your lump sum. And go away. Right. And, you know, so she got new boobs and lips and had her legs sculptured and instead of spending it on my son and yada, yada, yada. So years later, I'm, you know, angst about not seeing my son and not knowing what's going on with him. So I flew to Pittsburgh, not knowing where she lived. Not, I just knew she lived there. And the guy who sold her her car, I knew from the car business, he said she drives a black Jeep with a courtesy Oldsmobile sticker on the back, so that's all I know. And I think she lives in Swissvale. So I took the cab from the airport to Swissvale and had the cab go up and down the streets of the little town of Swissvale until I found a black Jeep. And she lived on Church Street, of all places. <laughs> and I found her again. And, and my dad's like, wait a minute. I spent all this money to get her out of this your life, and you spent 300 bucks flying back into her life. Well, you wanted to see your kid, yeah. and, you, and you did. And, I did. And, and listen, did. that's money well spent. Yeah. Okay, so you're back at the used car dealership in, in, Den in Denver, or is it Aspen? Aspen yeah. Between the Jeep and the, and the... Oh, yeah, yeah, and here comes the car carrier, and I'm just thinking, I'm having dinner that night uh, with Reggie Jackson and his girlfriend and new baby, and... Uh, He's Mr. Of, October? Yeah. Reggie Jackson. His uh, family friend for years, and he was out there skiing at the time, so he's staying at our house. So we're going to go out to dinner that night. And But yet I've got these two ounces of blow that I don't know what to do with. You know, Well, I know exactly what to do with them, but I've got to go to this dinner first. So I'm like chomping at the bit because I know I just can't even touch this bag of Coke until I go to dinner with Reggie. So we go to uh, Takasushi, Aspen, go have dinner. I'm done, finally. He goes, okay. I said, well, we're going to go out. Do you want to go? We had a nightclub at Aspen. And he, no, we're going skiing tomorrow. He said, I'm going home. Have fun, you know. So I went out, and I went right into the bathroom in the restaurant. And he's going up the stairs out of the restaurant, and I'm already in the bathroom getting high. And, and, uh, and that was the end of the end. I, uh, I uh, was engaged. I, I couldn't stop doing those two bags. They were two big quality bags of cocaine, and I ended up like... My, I was engaged to this girl in Aspen who was fantastic, and but she's watching me go down the tubes. Like I, you went from. Did this, she use with you? She did a little bit, but she didn't know who she was dealing. We with. got exactly. We got to the nightclub from the Japanese restaurant, and by that time, in that fifteen minutes time, by the time we're going in the front door of the club, uh, she said, "Give me some coke," and I said, "Why? You know I don't do coke." 
She goes, Diddy, give me some fucking Coke. Like, I know you're doing it. I know you're high. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, you know that that's like not even a part of my life. You know, I'm totally bullshit. She said, just give me some fucking. So I've got like in the inside pocket, one of the bags and the other bags at home. So I'm like, no, no, no. So we go inside. She goes, because the you bag you have is way too big for her exactly. to see. Exactly. She can't if, see if, this If I had a little giant, bindle, yeah. I'd have been like, yeah, yeah, guy dropped it on the floor. Yeah. There you go. But no, I have this big Ziploc in my pocket how bi- how and a big sport jacket on. Like, right? It's like an ounce of yeah, Coke. Yeah, it's That's an crazy. ounce of Coke. And yeah. the other ounce is at the house. Right. You know, and so she's going to know you have a serious I'm problem. Like, oh my if God. You so take we're the sitting out. at the bar and she's still bugging me. She goes, okay, forget that. Give me a hundred bucks so I can go see Alan over there and get my own Coke. And I said, I'm not buying no grandma. The you principal know? destroyed you. <laughs> yeah. So I said, all right, look. I, this is for a customer, and I, 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 I you know, blah, 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 bullshitted her, and I put it in her purse like this, and she, you know. The ounce. The whole ounce. Oh, yeah, put it yeah, in her yeah. purse, and she rifled off to the ladies' room, and I'm, like, sweating now, because that, that dope's the first time I've done it in quite a while. So I got my eye on that bag, and, like, what are you doing in there, and why is it taking so long? And I'm standing by the bar, and I see her come out of the bathroom. Instead of coming back to me at the bar, she goes across the room to the bouncer who... Um, uh, I'll never forget, big Hawaiian guy. And I see her talking to him, and I, it's a very crowded nightclub, and I see her talking to him, and all of a sudden I see him go up the stairs, and she comes back. I said, what was that all about? She goes, I gave Chemo, was his name, Chemo, that Coke, and told him to get rid of it. It was going to destroy your life. I said, you did what? Oh, my God. She goes, yeah, I told him to get rid of it. So I go running after him, and I couldn't catch him. But little, I got the other bag at home, so I'm like, fuck it. So we're fighting now, right? So we go home. And uh, we go in the bedroom. Remember Reggie Jackson staying upstairs, and oh he's God. watching my car dealership. He's wanting to get involved. He's in the car business, you know, in one way or shape or form. He collects cars, so he was, you know, I thought it was pretty cool what I had going on. I'm finally sober, and you know, he's watched me over the years, and so. But yet we come home. I'm kind of loaded, you know. Kind I, of. Yeah, I've tucked back some vodka while I was at the bar. You know, I'm Why low. did Reggie think you were sober? Because that's what well, you were Well, no, he thought me. I was sober until her and I got home and went in the, the bedroom. And, the, you know, this is a big Aspen house. The doors are two-inch thick wood doors. But her and I are in there having words, not screaming like, you know, we, we were Aspen trash. We weren't white trash yet. So but, yes. but we, the, the voices <laughs> were elevated. And, and he had his ear to the door. So she heard him airing, you know, this drug destroyed your whole life and now you're back into it. What do you think? We're engaged. My parents love you. What are you doing? La, 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 la. And I'm like, okay, I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. You know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, sorry. And we both lay down and go to bed. She falls asleep. I get up, go upstairs, get the other bag that was in the library of the office upstairs and get right back into it. And now I'm peeking down the stairs because I know she's going to wake up and go like, where is he? Comes upstairs, sees me high again. And, uh, well, he doesn't say it. He doesn't, no, he, she came upstairs. And uh, and she saw I was high again, and then I knew. I knew I was in trouble. I didn't know that he had had his ear to the void door. He didn't say anything earlier. How close were you with Reggie Jackson? Oh, I've known him for years. We go to the World Series games together. He's very good friends with my dad. So he comes there and polishes my dad's copper pots once a year. So he has a whole briefcase. He opens it up. And my dad, it's just funny because he's like the one thing he does for my dad. He comes, and we don't have those copper pots anymore. But that's crazy still. that Reggie Jackson is polishing your dad's pots. Right? It's fucking and it wasn't. It, it was by no means. It was something Reggie just always wanted to do. 
Yeah, he yeah. Yeah, he didn't need to polish anybody's pots. He'd come there and go skiing, and uh, so. Um, so she she knows you're using, and she knows I'm using. I've got the other bag. It's really good, so it's drawing me in. This bag of Coke is like, like I got It's more important than anything else in the world. My fiance, my car dealership, my relationship with my father and sisters, and everything. This bag of Coke is is everything. superseding everything. So what do I do? I get in my car with the bag throw some clothes in a bag and go to like my buddy's house or something and catch a flight out of Aspen in the morning to Miami and stay at my buddy's house in Bell Harbor. Who's got, who's not home. And he's like, I said, can I use your house in my, you know? So I went and stayed there for like a week or Did so. Did you tell her you were going to leave? No, I said, I just needed some space. You know, I got to go work this out. I need out. some space to do this code. <laughs> yeah. I have this code. Right, 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 right. And, uh, so I, I, uh, I, tr- I forwarded the phone calls from my office, Aspen Autosource, to my cell phone. So I'm answering the calls, like, but I'm in Miami. You know, Aspen Autosource, you know, like, I can't even, you know. Anyway, so the car dealership was not, the doors were not open. You know, my, my younger stepbrother was trying to manage things, but without me there, it was a disaster. And, uh, and she's ultimately pissed off. Uh, Elizabeth, who was a great girl. Anyway, long and the short is, I am now in Miami and I'm completely hooked on coke, and that bag can't last forever. No, like a week, you know. And uh, so, so sure you're lamenting what happened with the Hawaiian bouncer with the first bag. Like, <laughs> where did it go? One of the calls I took Aspen Auto Source. It was my father. Hey, Dit. You know, he calls me Dit when I. When it's only D I T. I know things are okay. If it's Diddy. Uh, he never calls me Richard. Uh, did he? If he says it like that, I know there's something wrong. But if it's, hey, did. So he said, hey, did. So I thought, oh, hey, hey, dad, you know, how's business? You know, and uh, I said, that's pretty good. We got snow last night. Or, yeah, yeah. And uh, Reggie's still there? I said, yeah, I think so. You know, I, and you're gone. You're in Florida. I'm in Miami. Right. Yeah. So he says, well, it's interesting you say that business is slow because I'm standing in your office. Hmm. No, it's like my heart just dropped because it was like he didn't you to fuck you. Yeah, I didn't steal from my dad. I wasn't a big liar. I was I would evade the truth, but I didn't. This was a blatant lie, you know, like and I was just like. So I don't know if I hung up or what, but at that point, everything escalated. So now he knew everything, though, too. Yeah. Now I'm having trouble finding coke. So now I'm smoking crack in Miami. My buddy said he needed his place back, so now I'm in a hotel, which then went to a motel, which then went to a, a lesser motel, because all my credit cards were, like, being shut down. You know, like, my life was folding in front of me. I was running out of cash. You know, I was on the run. So um, I had my American Express card, so I drove to Bell Harbor. They have an American Express office. I walked in with an expired ID uh, which I didn't realize until I got in there. And, and I said, I need to take $10,000 off this card. And she said, in cash? And I said, yeah, yeah, how about traveler's checks? I said, no, 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 cash. And she said, well, this is going to take a minute, you know, la, 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 la. And so she gave me the money, and she said, listen, your driver's license is expired. And I thought, oh, my God, like, because I need a car now, you know, like I got 10 grand, and I'm going to get some more Coke. So I take a cab. Maybe I don't realize but I took a cab to a budget rent-a-car to rent a car, and the guy says, I can't rent you this car because your driver's license expired. And it was a Florida driver's license, by the way. 
expired yesterday. Mm. And I'm like, how, how, how could that be? And I look, and it literally expired the day before. Horrible. And I'm like, so I said, well, wait a minute. Can you sell me the car? And he said, well, yeah, I could probably sell you the car, but I can't rent, rent you it. this car. I have a dealer plate with me. So I said, I'll just put my dealer plate on it. Just sell me the car. I don't care. I don't. So he said, how are you going to pay for that? So I put it on the American Express. And it, like, it just went right through. It was like a town, used town car. And off I went. On, you know, not like a cowboy. Like I have, you know, shattered my life. Ten grand in your pocket. So upset. But I've got the ten grand. And, and I, you know, as long as you can get high. It's okay. Yeah, but now you're going to have to get really high because your reality is really painful really right bad. now. You have disappointed people beyond disappointment. You know, just like. And so I ended up getting as far as Denver. Which I... It's a long story. We don't have time for it all. But I stopped in Baton Rouge, saw my son and my wife, stole some of her Dexedrines in order to make their last leg of the trip because I'm going... How old are you at that point? I don't even know. Uh, 30-ish? Yeah. And uh, so, anyway, you know... Does it kill you to tell the story? Well, because it gets a little confusing because it's just like... There's, there's so many couple. so many running through Colorado with coke and, and, and desperation. Right, and these girls that become victims, really. You know, like they become hostages. Mm. And, and I was never a physical abuser. I didn't like... But let me tell you, if there was any other kind of abuse, like just... I just need you. You... you, you I'm not okay without you. So if you left me, I'd go get you, bring you back you know, love you again, and, you know, so you end up becoming a great lover. If you ever do get sober, I'm a great lover because I've had to, I've had to overcompensate because of my blunders for years that I thought, I have even thought to myself, if I ever was sober and I ever was really in love, she, it's going to be great because I really, I know how to arrange flowers, like, really well. Yeah, sure. So, so that, and I know to shower you and the manipulation would, without without the uh, other foot dropping it would be amazing for somebody. Exactly, and I have that girl now. You know, uh, thank God, another, which is another story. But so uh, life goes on, and it's just more of the same. Just uh, and I'm, did uh, that story end in, in treatment? Also, I'm sure. Well, yeah, I was in Denver, uh, and I that's when I flew to Pittsburgh. I had no more money left. I sold the Lincoln for $4,000 to a buddy of mine in Denver so that I could get to, so I get to Pittsburgh with four grand and a cocaine habit. That's when you went looking for the mother of your child. Yeah, and I found her and she said, you know, screamed and yelled. I showed up at the door with roses and I said, look, I come with love in my heart. I just want to see my son. Well, he's not here right now. I said, well, and she, what are you doing here? Your father told me, la, 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 la. You know, I said, well, can I just see my son? Not today. He's not here. I said, well, where is he? Anyway, she was, he was at her mother's house. And so I ended up getting an apartment. In Pittsburgh. And I got my old job back from years ago, selling cars. And, and I stayed there for about eight months. And it got worse. And it just got Same worse. stuff. Yeah. But now I was just like selling cars during the day and just staying up all, all by myself. Like this was a this was this was not a social get high with my buddy. There was no social life left. Crack or coke? Uh, 
both. I think I was cooking it now myself because the powder Free just base. wouldn't get me high anymore. Like, were it you cooking it with the ether and all that, or no? Just baking soda. Right, I right. was a cowboy. The Ready Rock. <laughs> yeah, I wish I knew how to do it better. And and white boys or this white boy is not very good at cooking. Coke. You were not a masterful crack I wasted crack more maker. coke than most people have ever snorted right. trying to cook it. Right. Or you know, and you finally get so frustrated, you get one of the big spoons out of the drawer that you the big cooking spoons, and you fill it up. Because you're like, I can't mess this up, you know. And you throw your baking soda in, and so anyway, I'm not very good at it. Um, but see, so now I'm smoking coke, you know, and preferring it that way, and can blow a big old hit, and and uh, and that's that was very addicting, you know. To uh, that's what I hear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I end up back at Alina Lodge somehow. I think. Uh, they call, somebody called my father and he said, I'm not paying for no, you know, freaking Alina Lodge and I'm not because they don't take insurance at the time. And uh, so I think I just went back there. They took me in and uh, and called him. And did he pay for it? I, I assume so. All right. So you get out of the second Alina Lodge and, and then what do you do? And I don't mind all this. I'm okay. happy to hear. Well, OK, well, it, first of all. There was a girl in there. You're not allowed to associate with the women. So there's no cigarettes. There's no TV except for one little one with an antenna on it, you know, at the time. Uh, so essentially no TVs. Uh, they give me a newspaper on Sunday and coat and tie dinner. It's a very old-fashioned kind of treatment center. A big book and a 12 and 12, and that's it. And you're there for a year. And uh, so the cigarette thing would drive people crazy because you can't, there's no stores close to this place. But there was this little girl who was just about as cute as they ever come. And she was the niece of a famous actor that I was there with the first time I was at Alina's Lodge. Somehow, I don't know if he wrote me a letter and said, look out for my niece. And I sure did look out for her. You know? And uh, so if they catch you, like in the dining room, having goo-goo eyes, you're not allowed to talk to the women. But you know, you're all in one big room, and it's a family-style dinner, coat and tie, the whole thing. And her and I naturally start this thing up, uh, and it's her birthday, and somehow she gets a note to me and says, all I want for my birthday is a cigarette. So I decide to walk in the winter, like two and a half miles each way, to the gas station. Now, you have no ID, no money, no nothing, but they do give you stamps to mail letters. So we're not mailing letters. We're collecting, and my buddies and I, we collect. So I get walking to the gas station with like five books of stamps, see a guy pumping gas, trade him for enough money to buy a couple packs of Marble Reds and a box of Lipton tea bags, and make it back in the snowstorm to Alina Lodge. And I'm like a king. I got two packs of Reds and, and a box of caffeine. And we made one big batch of tea with the whole box of tea, drank it all, put our suits on. I got her the two cigarettes somehow or another. And then we went and we were smoking. And, and it's like, you can't even imagine, right? You're like kids. And uh, anyway, she smokes those two cigarettes with her friend and gets caught. You get thrown out immediately. I don't care who your father is or your mother is. Or your uncle. Or your uncle. So they're throwing her out, and there's all kind of commotion because they're throwing her and the other girl out. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I feel terrible, you know. So I make my way over there to where the staff is in the staff building and, and to the director's office, and I knocked on the door, and he seemed busy. 
like 7.30 at night after dinner. He's having to throw these people out, get them to the airport, a whole thing. And I said, look, I need to talk to you. He said, I'm a little busy right now, Butera. And I'm like, listen, I really need to talk to you. He says, what's it about? I said, those cigarettes. He goes, what cigarettes? I haven't found the cigarettes yet. You know. So anyway, I came clean. I said, look, I'm the one that went and got them. I'm the one that gave them to her. Throw me out, not her. And I love being a hero anyway. So, And I had 11 months in, so I thought, I'll be all right. And uh, he said, I'm not throwing you out. I'm sending you to another place mm. where they can... Really deal with you properly. <laughs> yeah. So they kept the two girls, and I got shipped out the next morning uh, to a place in Mississippi, which is how I ended up on the Gulf Coast. And then what happened? A lot. <laughs> a lot. You know, I, when I got down to Mississippi, I, I, uh, I got custody of my son. My, uh, Thomas. My fir- yeah, my first son. And, um, and, and that was and you were through sober. the help of her parents. And I was sober. Uh, yeah, I ended up, uh, and the ex was sober and, 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 and speaking and, but still not working the steps, but like speaking at meetings and like, how can you really speak at a meeting if you haven't worked the steps? And your ex was a mess. Uh, yeah, she was trying to get her nursing license back and, and so she Well, her parents were letting you get custody. That says a lot. Yeah, they, they, they supported me in, in taking care of him. He wanted to go to this supersonic school down there, Catholic boys' school, boarding school called St. Stanislaus. So so that's what we did. I bought a house on the water and uh, started building houses now. And I knew nothing about it. Um, my dad came down there a couple times, and he said, yeah, let's do it. And I bought some waterfront property, um, made a really good deal, and um, that's right when my father met his wife-to-be. Um, and... So I sort of lost track of my father at that point. You know, we were sort of, you know, starting to develop a relationship. He was getting to know my son, coming down there. We'd all go out on the boat. He'd hang out at the house. It was pretty cool. And then, um, but I want my dad, I don't need him to be single his whole life. He met a girl, so I wasn't, you know, I was in support of the whole thing, except for that I couldn't reach my father anymore. Like I couldn't. He was so into the I woman. I could call him. I don't right. mean it that way, but I just couldn't. He was gone. He was. He was too involved with this. This woman. Yeah, yeah. Was and she was the very? Part... Was she the very young one? Yeah, she was much younger. Uh, her name was Sophie, and so about eight months later, my father called me up, and I'm starting to build houses now. Him and I were going to do that together, but he was like, "Well, just you know, you'll figure it out," you know. So I'm sort of winging this spec house on the water, you know, and doing okay, making my way through it. He said, call me when you need to do the lighting because his new wife graduated from Yale, you know, with an architectural degree, and she's super with lighting, he said. So call me when you're ready to do the lighting. And I remember calling him, and they were just too busy planning their now wedding. And he asked me to be the best man at the wedding, and I did. So I said yes. And I flew out there three and a half years sober, and I was the best man, and her sister was the maid of honor. So that's how I met her younger sister. And um, that's a story that's um, sad in the end, but uh, Domino and I were the black sheep of these two families. You know, her family, her father was a famous actor, her stepfather is Peter Morton, Morton Steakhouse. And oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. so he's a hard rock heir, was her brother, Harry Morton. And what was the Domino were, movie? a nice family. Huh? What was the Domino movie? So Domino uh, was an addict like me, 
only heroin was a part of her story too. And so, that's great. It's yeah, great. It's great so heroin you. and meth, you know, you find the right combination. Well, when did you hit the meth? When I met Domino. When I when I got reintroduced to this high octane lab dope that they now make, you know, because this was in two thousand three. So um, the movie, how is she? What is what is she the connection? She wrote the story of her life and took it to Tony Scott and her father, her stepfather, and let's make this a movie. And he said it's missing something, and she's like, "Well, what? Like, you know, a piece of drama, in other words, to the story, which her story is pretty wild, right? But because she was a tomboy, you know, through nunchucks, and she was a badass kid, and and rebellious, and you know, got thrown out of fraternities and for wild things. And anyway, uh, sororities, I should say. Uh, anyway, so I get back after the wedding, which was a week long, big wedding in Aspen, and uh, sober still. But my my father and I didn't get along so well during this wedding, so. Um, by the time I got back, I was just angry again. I was this angry guy that, you know, dry drunk shit. Real. Dry. What was the thing in the movie that it was missing? Oh yeah, yeah. I forgot. I lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. So Tony. So she went back not knowing, you know, because he said, "I don't know what it is that's missing." So she opened the the want ads and saw an ad: "How to be a bounty hunter seminar. Want to become a bounty hunter? Come to the seminar. Pay five hundred bucks." And I don't think it was all of 500, but, and, and so she did. She went there, and that was Mickey Rourke and uh, some other characters that were running this seminar on how to become a bounty hunter. And uh, she's a sexy girl. You know, these are both she and her sister. So she, and Kira Knightley plays her in the movie, Mickey Rourke and her whole family. So her mom's in the movie and the whole thing. So, so basically the thing she added to her story was that she's a bounty hunter. Now she's a bounty hunter, and her mom didn't want her staying in uh, motels around the country, so she bought her this RV that's like, you know, one of these super stretch RVs, and she painted skulls on it and everything, and they went chasing criminals around the country. And that was the movie. And that was the movie. And the, her real life, though, she wasn't doing that stuff. But she really was. She really did do that. As she was writing the script, she really did go to that seminar, and she really did. She made it a part of her life. She became a bounty hunter. She became a bounty hunter. She became bounty hunter of the year, Oh, actually. my God. And, and the award ceremony is in the movie. So when did, and, and when you met her, was she bounty hunting? She wasn't so much bounty hunting when I met her. <laughs> she had already done that. Yeah, she had pretty much played all that out, finished the script, sold the script for like a million two or something. Wow. And now she was partying. You know? Now she then she was just doing. She drugs. lived in West Hollywood in her sister in a guest house to her sister's house, um, which was a very cool place. And so I get back from the wedding and and I'm in that miserable place. And I, my phone rings. It's my father. Now I haven't spoke to him since her, him and I had some words before I left. And he said, "Hey, what's going on?" And I said, "Ah, you know, I'm back here. I got to get this spec house sold. You know, I got, you know." Time isn't on my side and all that, whatever. And he said, well, why don't you just close everything up? Tell her, pay everybody forward a week, you know, like all my contractors, and go see Domino. You seem to get along so well. Your dad had the worst instincts for you, I swear <laughs> to God. Didn't he? But he was only trying he to, He like, meant well, but he's yeah, like, yeah, he's like yeah, why, totally. don't you, why don't you bring an ounce of Coke with you and see how it goes <laughs> and a bottle of wine and see what happens. So I fly out there and... Uh, 
And, and I was off, to, the minute I got off the plane, you know, and I walked into her house, we were smoking meth, and, uh, and it just, it really got bad, because the, so hold uh, her, up, though. Hold her sister, I, these, these parents, are the moments, everybody found out about it these really are the, quickly. But these are the moments I live for. You show up sober. Yeah. You show up, you haven't had a fucking drink or a drug in three years. Three and a half, almost four years. Okay, F- almost four years. You, you go, you're going to see the super hot bounty hunter, sister of your father's new wife. Uh, which is really your mother, aunt. your aunt, it's, it's yeah, like your my aunt, step aunt. Yeah, your step aunt Domino. So you get to the house sober. You've you've fucking been busted all over the country. You've been in treatment a million times. You you've been kidnapped. You 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 have two kids I, and by two women in two different states. And you get to this estate. And how long before you get there are you smoking meth? Thirty seconds. What I a, knew. I knew. Because I had taken her to some meetings during the wedding, and I knew there was something. Amiss. She wasn't into it. There, right? there. She was like, "Get me the fuck out of it." You know, I don't want to be at the say. She was doing it for purposes of of posing, and uh, and at that point, I think that's all I was doing either, because I just wanted to get high. Now, was that the first hit of that kind of meth that you taken? Oh my god! And literally the first, maybe after two hits, I. I don't want to glorify it, but I, I had never felt that good in my life. Like, I just, like, all of that pain, all of the stress, all of the fatigue that you feel in life, all of that's gone in an instant. You know, I no longer need Wellbutrin. I no longer need all that host of meds I was on to stay sober. And to stay know. up. Yeah. yeah. So I stayed up for 16 days. Oh, my I God. I didn't sleep. And, uh, just about, smoking the meth and fucking Domino. Snorting it, yeah. Oh, snorting the mess. Snort. I like to snort it. Remember I, from the time I was a kid in school? She's like, why do you, it, it's going to destroy your nose, you know? And I'm like, I, I got addicted to the burn. It's amazing your nose is in such good shape. You see, <laughs> our, poor Artie Lang. It's like, how did you, I mean, I guess I heard you. I would s- smoke meth to go to sleep. What does that mean? It, it, that's how I would go to sleep because it, it's a different high, you know, like if you shoot it, smoke it, or Snort. No, I did They're, all. I did all, but I don't think I did meth as good as your meth. Yeah, because I could eat on it after a while. I could, I could. Snort and you a never, lot. in all of these stories, the only downer I'm really hearing about is alcohol. You know, like you weren't like when you did coke, you weren't seeking out pills. You didn't want the quaaludes when you were kidnapped. You didn't mm. want benzos. No, you, you, never you, you, wanted. You benzos. took the opiates when opiates. you got hurt. Um, but so you're you're up for 16 days. You're, it's all body chemistry, though. The way we interact with drugs is all based totally. on our brain and body chemistry. But she was, and I really don't want to air her dirty laundry, but she, you know, she was into heroin. So she's smoking heroin on tinfoil and saying, like, like black tar stuff and saying, like, why don't you just try a hit, you know? And this white boy can't smoke heroin, can't do heroin. Like, I just vomit all over you and the kitchen. Like, Right away, I just can't. I just it doesn't, you know. And I'll try to make it work. And it's like it's like eating escargot or something <laughs> until you like it or whatever. And, and after a while, I made opiates work. But yeah. it, for a long time, I always puke, you know. And I've been puking almost every day. Whenever I'm using, if I'm drinking, and I'm just a puker, like I just. I used to love puking on Yeah, you feel I, it so feels good. so good. You know, yeah. I, I mean, I'd be driving, I'd get nauseous, I'd open the car door, throw up, start driving again. But totally, I, would, I would love it. Though. Totally feel great. I mean, I would stick my fingers halfway down my throat on a daily basis just because of the nausea. You yeah. know what I mean? And, and then I'd feel better. Yeah. Okay, so you're with Domino, 16 days of fucking. Well, mess. my old man calls 
like day seven, and he left some money. He said, "You're gonna need a new wardrobe if you're gonna hang out with her." So like there was. Like he's a, such a fucking. Pe- he, he's such a piece of work. You know. <laughs> so I'm like at Saks buying clothes and and uh, and he, he all the best intentions. I don't. I don't. It's I so don't funny. Hold, I don't hold him to. It's like my dad didn't give me anything, and I, I'm still like you. You're you're responsible. For my drug addiction, your dad gave you fucking booze, a plane ticket to a drug addict's house, and then money. And I had no idea, though. Bless his heart, he really didn't. He just wanted a life. He had for terrible me. instincts. Yeah, he thought, how cool would it be? Me marry this girl, and, and you'll you be with her sister. With it's perfect. She's got her movie coming out, right. and we keep it all in the family, and 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 you guys live happily ever after. Like he, Why you not? know, like he's a hopeless romantic he's, yeah, or something. Sure. And uh, it's certainly better than a couple of these past girls that I had signed up sure. or what seemed like. I mean, this was a runway model in L.A. So, she, I mean, she's a pretty cool chick, five foot ten blonde, you know, the whole thing. So and it seemed kind of cool to me. And, you know, sign me up. Plus, I got the meth on board. So everything's good. And uh, and so my dad calls and says, oh, Sophie's flying out on the jet to uh, have a dinner party at the house. Private jet. Yeah. How is so, flying private? Uh, would you say it's better than flying public? I would say I haven't done enough of it because of my drug That's addiction. That's too bad. Right. But I've, I've spent yes. an, enough time on privates. Uh, so, yeah, she's coming in tonight to have a dinner party there. Now I'm thinking, like, is somebody going to go to the store? No, the caterers come in. You know, like, they do this whole dinner. Like, she's landing at 4 at 7. They're having a dinner party. Well, I got to go. <laughs> like, I got to get out of here. I'm, like, whacked out of my tree. So what I about said, Domino? How fucked up is she's she? She's in like on the computer, stuck, like taking another hit of heroin, like very casual, you know. And and I'm like, she's like, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, let's get out of here. I can't be here when your sister gets here. My dad's not coming, but just her sister. And like dinner party? No, no, no. When you're when you're past day six and seven on meth, you don't want to see anybody, you know. Um. So we decide to get in the car with the dog, and we're gonna go and visit her dad's grave in Santa Barbara. She's been wanting to clean the headstone, and so we're going to stay at the... On meth is the best time to clean a headstone, oh, totally, too. You can be very totally, thorough. It's really all thorough. day affair, like yes. a picnic. Yes. And, uh, and that's exactly what we did. And, uh, but so we got there. We stayed at the Double Tree on the beach, and, 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 and uh, I'll never forget. And I kept... Uh, I, she would go to sleep. I wouldn't sleep. This was, you know, she'd been doing this a while. So me, this was, like, great... You know, I stay up all night, and uh, in the back of your head, were you like, "This is going to end badly"? I I knew it ended badly when we got to the front desk of the DoubleTree, and she was a little more rebellious than I. You know, like she was mad because you know we were the two black sheep, and 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 my life was folding in on me very quickly. Uh, well, not not yet, I guess, at that point. Well, your but, life had folded plenty. Your life was yeah. like an origami fucking crane. You oh, know, I like, know what it was. It was, we were going to pay for the room, you know, to, to initially pay for the room, and I'm handing them the, the American Express card, and she says, you have two of those. Like, she's watching me. I said, yeah, they're both with my name on them, Junior. But one, the bill goes to my dad, and one, the bill comes to me. So I've got two of them, platinum cards. And so she's like, well, why are you going to give them yours? I said, because I get the bill and I take care, you know, fuck that. And she gives him his card. And I was like, oh, Christ. Like, I never really did that kind of thing to my dad. I never really, and I, maybe I'm bullshitting you, okay? But maybe I'm, sure I'm living I, in a dream world. Yes. But I never 
directly stole from my father. You know, I stole time, love, disappointment, all that kind of stuff. And I'm you sure I cost him millions, knew. but he, I didn't steal $100 off his dresser. It wasn't my style. Well, you, you, he gave you enough that you didn't have to. And if you did, like, it's, you know, it, it, it submarines the whole thing. Exactly. So when she yeah, takes the car... Don't trip over a dollar to pick up a nickel. Right, right, exactly. You know, so... Um, so she makes you pay with her dad, your dad's card. Yeah, and I remember because, uh, because I ordered room service and the room service bill was like 1300 oh my god you know yeah and, but i remember feeding her banana pancakes in the morning and uh I, there's a story behind it but i, I don't think i can tell it why not <laughs> she i just she had that british accent you know and i think that was the first time we had sex was that night in the hotel because there was so much meth going on and this is like maybe it wasn't the first time but it was a good time how's that and she said to me she said she said, she, I was feeding her a bite of banana pancakes in the bed. And she said, she said, did he? I said, yes, Domino. She said, I quite like the way you fucked me last night. And I said, oh, good. I said, and she said, hey, did he? I said, yes, Domino. She said, well, you fucked me like that again tonight. And I said, yeah, sure. You know, like, <laughs> it's funny. I'll never forget that. And we were just eating banana pancakes. Uh, so she was a cool chick. Those she were the good, cool the good times. Yeah, 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 yeah. We stayed up there, I don't know, four or five more days. And then once her sister was clear of the house, we went back. And I eventually made it back to, to the Gulf Coast, New Orleans. And uh, so I... Uh, what happened with Domino? So Domino went on to uh, <laughs> working on the movie with Keira Knightley. That's, the, the movie was still being filmed then. And... Uh, I got a phone call from her maybe a week later. And she said, did he? And I said, yes, Domino. She said, Ziggy, that was the name of her dog. Ziggy and I want to come to Mississippi and see what all you have going on there, you know, because I've got all this stuff going on. And, and I said, okay, Domino. So she flew into Mississippi, and she brought some of that high-octane meth with her just for a head stash type of thing. <clears throat> and I'll never forget because they, she checked her bag, and they lost her bag. And it had the meth in the bag. And it had the meth in it. So she went to get her bag off the off the uh, turnstile, and there was no bag. So Total it was like trauma. on the next plane. And I'm like, so, oh, no, now her bag got lost and, and uh, wasn't on the plane that she was on. So we had to wait for the next plane from LAX to come in because it had her bag on it. But you hadn't been using meth in Mississippi. No, so I'm, like, desperate for it because I've been away from it. Like, I was afraid to fly home with it or whatever. And... Uh, and so it comes time, like we go to like Denny's to get something to eat to kill time until the next flight from LAX to New Orleans comes in. And then the question was, who's going to go in and claim the bag? Because why did it get lost to begin with? And, and you know, you're on. You're, you're starting you're to get be busted. Sure. Yeah, yeah. She goes, Ditty, I think it'll be you going in. <laughs> you know, so I went in and the bag was fine. It just got lost. And so we went back and. And people in Mississippi had never really had a taste of that high-octane uh, crystal meth. You know, they had backyard type of shake and bake, whatever. But this, uh, I had a few people that were working for me that got a little taste of this, and they said, like, literally, can you get more of that? I said, I don't know. I never, like, I know it's never, I was a drug doer, but I was never a drug. 
You know, never a major drug dealer. Maybe in school you sold right. it a little bit. And then I had a little girl in Mississippi uh, who I literally had to push out of my door because Domino was coming to town, and she's like, "What are you?" Doing? I said, "I just need some space," you know, and because Domino was like on the next plane, to, uh, you know, and I'm like, "I just need some space." She said, "You never needed space before." You know? And this was the sober You're like, girlfriend. No, but my, my five foot ten model meth head is coming, and you need to go. Right, and this girl was like the perfect little real estate agent, Lexus driving, but sober girlfriend. Right. You know? uh, and now I'm not sober anymore, so I don't really. It doesn't work. Anymore. Yeah, it doesn't work. I have no more use for you in my life. I have a cowgirl now. You know, like, and uh, and as you would, you have a bounty hunter. Yeah, much more than a cowgirl. You know, a gunslinging. Yeah. You know, crazy, <laughs> crazy person, crazy meth slinging. So, uh, and Domino wasn't a drug dealer, so she wasn't a. She didn't. She was a good girl. She really had a good heart. She. I, I don't have. This is not a Domino bashing session, because she also had best intentions for me. But this little girl was now stalking my house. And the so real she estate. Was, yeah, I was out on the. I was out on the porch, and. Uh, my phone was ringing and there'd be nobody on the other end. So I called her and I heard my phone, her phone ring in the woods outside my house. And I said, uh, her name was Anne Marie. I said, Anne Marie, are you in the woods behind my house? She's like, what are you talking about? I'm at my house. Well, she was in the woods by my house trying to figure out what the heck was going on inside that house. And she thought she figured it out and thought it enough that she called my father in Aspen and said, you know, there's some girl named Domino out here visiting with your son, and I think they're on methamphetamine because they're up every night, all night long, and that's what they do here in Mississippi. And that's, that was the beginning of the end. And your dad's like, oh, no. Oh. <laughs> he, it all came crashing into his face. What totally, he had, yes, the totally crashing. And, um, and now we're really outlaws, the two of us, you know, and... And, uh, had you started call, selling I had a math loan? No? He called my banker and said, "Don't lend my son any more money." And I like called to yeah, it was an open line of credit. I called to like call down a hundred grand so that I could continue paying for my life and a lumber pack. I was building a house, you know. And she, the lady said, I, "I can't, I can't extend you anymore." I said, "What do you mean? It's an open line of credit. I've only used a small portion of it. You have my whole house." She said, "I can't do it anymore." There was no cosigner. But there was enough that when your father calls and said, don't lend my son any money anymore, that she came up with some excuses and said no. So now I was really screwed. So I, uh, that's when we came up with the idea to start shipping some of this high-octane methane from California. And it got worse, and it got bigger, and the money got bigger, and, and, uh, and it went on, and the feds chased me for... How did you get caught? Uh, well, they put a confidential informant I had no idea, but he may, somehow wiggled his way into my life um, via uh, another girl that I was associated with. And she said, Chris is a great guy, and la, 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 la. And so I took Chris in to my house. He lived in, the confidential informant was now living, and my driver took care of all the cars and That's what he was that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. How big was the math operation? It was a two pounds every 10 days kind of thing, which back then uh, an ounce of meth would go in a heartbeat for 1700 and we're paying 700 So it was like money would... And you're not doing any house building anymore. I am. Oh, you're still am, house building. Yeah, because now I've got 
yeah, I've got funding again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'm refunded now. And so So you're not just depraved on meth. No, I'm fit. in fact now I'm working 17 hours a day. Cuz now because my lawyer in in on the Gulf Coast, my father called him up and assumed my lawyer and he said, "I'm no longer your lawyer. I now work for your father and we're taking everything you own from you." I said, "The hell if you are. This stuff's in my name." My father and I have the same name. Whatever. I said, you're not taking any of it from me. I closed the LLC up so that, and it took him off as a partner and as an officer. And, and anyway, I, I managed to save it only for the feds to take it later. But, um, and sold a house, and, and that also, you know, is like a half a million bucks. So that came in, and, and I made money on that house. So now there was money everywhere now. So. And your and your and your addiction was not insane it at that was, point. No, no, it was out of completely out of control. But you were still pulling it off. Totally, because I now I was into opiates, so I I needed something. Because, there was a, there was were, a missing you were, chemical. Here. You were smoking it with Domino, and you were like yeah, evening well, out. No, I was mostly snorting it and then smoking it like at night. And it would like even out the meth, settled me down, right. sort of, and I could go. I could take a few big hits of meth and just go right to sleep. I just had the kid Cat who had meth. played. Uh, the goalie in the Mighty Ducks, and he said that he would smoke meth and heroin at the same time, and he'd call it a black and white cookie. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was better life through chemicals. So you, the the dope you were doing in Louisiana was the tar from L.A. Also, they were shipping out. Tar. No, no, no. He, the same guy that would FedEx me these in in like those loose FedEx bags, and I lived in a vacation home area, you know, like all waterfront living. So I knew who was home, who wasn't home. So I would have them send it to a house where there's nobody home. And they just leave it on the porch. Or and they would just leave it up on the porch, no signature required. Those, role, those rules have changed from what I hear. But I would just go into by boat, take my boat there, grab it, then go to one casino, go to another casino, and come home essentially empty-handed. And I wouldn't jump in my car with a pound of meth. I would be all by boat so I could leave... New Orleans, you can get from New Orleans to Bay St. Louis to Gulfport to Biloxi and all by boat, you know, just in the, in the, in the Gulf, in the, in the uh, Mississippi Sound, they call it, which is the Gulf of Mexico. Incredible. So, and you're, you're selling and using in all Selling those and using. And he's sending those yellow Narcans. Just in the case. Opiates. And they seem to level me out a little bit. Like once I started to get used to those without puking. Heroin made me puke. Like it was too Narc intense. Narcos or Narcos? Narcos the yeah. yellow Narcos. Yeah, yeah, I was eating them like candy or I'd take a, a, a Oxycontin 80, split it in half, crush it, snort half you know, in the morning and half at noon. But if I snorted the whole thing, I'd puke. That was pretty much, you know. So you're developing a good opiate habit. Yeah, and uh, and, and it was like... I don't speak to my father anymore. I don't speak to my sisters anymore. Um, Is Domino still there? Domino's back in L.A. So her and I grew apart. You're alone. On New girlfriend. Yeah. Money coming out of my ears. Like I didn't even really, without, I do not want to sound grandiose, but I didn't even know what to do with it all, really. Like what well, was the first time you were making your own money at that clip? You had lived with money your whole life, but you didn't, earn it and all of a sudden no. you're earning it in the yeah, worst my way my biggest dilemma was what to do with the cash because i had bought a safe and like strapped it to the walls and hid it and built the house around it but then it filled up what do you do when it fills up so i'd buy a truck 
or something. And I didn't know what to do with it. So I started burying it in these gray outs that I'd have. I'd be on opiates and meth. And I wanted to go to bed, but I couldn't go to bed with just loose money around, you know, like, say, 30 grand. So I would dig these shallow graves, as I called them. Oh and I'd go God. out and I'd dig a shallow grave. I'd just deal with it in the morning. You know, this way, because people are How around, much money everybody's you everybody's hanging lost? around your head. When you have meth, you can't get rid of everybody, you know. So you might go to bed, but there's 10 other characters, including Hector Camacho before he died. He's hanging around because I'm building him a house now. And he went from coke to meth once I introduced him to that. And so now he's training again and he's on the meth. And so there's just people everywhere. And it was total insanity. How much money do you think you lost to shallow graves not finding it? Not many. One, one was buried off the exit of, of 95, or 95, I-10, and I think it was 80 grand. All right, everyone, then, get your shovels. They're talking about Mississippi. Right, you'll never find it, because I can't even find it. Do you ever wake and up then, in the like, middle of the night? Literally, when the like, feds came, they came with a backhoe and started digging holes. So how long do you, do you, do you does it last down there before the informant busts yeah. you? Um, a, a couple of years. Oh, my God, that's yeah. a long time. Went by, it went until June, so that, I met her at the wedding in 2003, and now we're in, uh, well, they actually came in the final time they came in. They kept coming into my house with all their many agents and dogs and everything, and they kept coming up empty-handed, so they were getting angrier and angrier because they couldn't find Where it. were you They couldn't it? find the dope. I, w I was real sneaky, dude. I, you're not going to get my... I've been hiding from the time I was 11 years old, hiding my marijuana in a mason jar in the backyard, a foot deep, you know, in the woods. You're not going to find it. And you're not going to find my meth in my little 80 grand either. So where did you keep the meth? In the holes? In the, in the yard? No, no. I had a safe. It was harder to smell meth, so a dog wouldn't necessarily smell meth back in 2003. I'm sure they can do it now. But So I could... Like I had a, a, stimney, a chimney stack where there's a hole in the middle of the house where the chimney, there's a fireplace in this house. So it's a long story, but I would strap a safe to the side of that wall from the attic upstairs with a trap door and then insulation on the outside. You'd never find it. Like, you just never find it. And then the one at the next house, they really knew there was a new and bigger safe at that house. And they said, we're going to burn this house down because we know, the CI told him he found the empty safe box. Like, I forgot to throw away the box. It was right around How Christmas. How big a safe is it? It was pretty big, like the size of a doghouse type of thing. Okay. You know? And it was heavy. So I kept, I, I just sawed off a bunch of broomsticks in half. And that's how I rolled it around at night because I was by myself. I couldn't have anybody know where it was. In that period, were you just selling to dealers? Well, yeah, yeah. I had uh, people and, yeah. So I would distribute, like, I don't Double Jeopardy. No. So they, yeah, main dealers. And, and like, what was it like just the lifestyle of hanging out with them all the time? It was insane. But I kind of, I, I, I was addicted to, the to being the guy that had all, there was no other dope from Alabama to New Orleans that, that anybody wanted except for this. And the stuff that they finally got, they only got four grams from me. If Were you, you connected? You look to my the... name up. It says less than fifty grams, but they sentenced me to ten pounds of ninety-eight percent pure methamphetamine. Were you connected to the cook? Also, did you know the cook? No, these were no. 
So no. who was who were you getting it from? This wasn't like a cook. There was a cook somewhere, but these were those super labs that were in either L.A. or Mexico. So it was coming from California by FedEx. Like the Breaking Bad shit. Yeah, you can't, you can't even know how exciting it is to know you have three pounds of meth coming by FedEx by 11 o'clock the next day. Right. You know, like... Every day. And they're chomping at the bit. And as much as I had it, be gone in... Eh, 48 hours it'd all be gone. You know? And then, and then there was a matter of collections. I didn't always get everything up front. Say there was money all over the street. You know, and um, how did you collect the money? Was that difficult? Well, one of the ways I collected it was that CI. He knew all these people. They grew up. This is like Brett Favre territory over in Kill, Mississippi. Well, that whole area was just infested. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, yeah, he, he would go collect money for me or I'd go collect money myself. Did you need to, like, have a gun? Did you ever have no, violent and situations? No, I never, like... Like when they busted me, like, you're the only drug dealer we know. Like if this caliber that doesn't even own a gun, they found a BB gun under the couch. Like that was it. Like, that wasn't the lifestyle. It wasn't like no, violence. I didn't get in this for killing people. Of course, but what about protecting yourself? What about when you're all fucking hopped up on meth well, and crazy and scared? Well, that's what happened at that house in D'Iberville, Mississippi, which I finally got the big house on the water with the big pier and a bigger go fast boat and all that. And and uh, they said. They said, Butera, when they get you, they're going to come by flatboat. That's how they're going to get you. Because I had a wall all the way around my house, so you couldn't really... The feds, when they want to come, they're going to come one way or another. But they, were, they, they put divers in the water. So I'm standing out on my pier one night in January 2005, and I know this wasn't a manatee in the water. There was something just like swished in the water in front of me. And I'm sitting out there at the time thinking, if I can just make it until summer... I'm out of here. Pack up all this money. Because you felt them closing in. And, and I wanted to move to Costa Rica. And I was going to build a 55 and older retirement place and, and take the money and some of the crew that I had developed. And I had flatbed. I kept buying trailers and trucks. And so I was just going to have like a caravan. And we were all going to... This was this insane dream I had that we were all moving to, to Costa, Costa Rica. Rica. And Buddy was going to sell me this. I think it was 50 or 100 acres that, you know, you don't own all the land down there, how the ownership works, but that's, I'm out. I'm done. That's where I want to go anyway. That's where I still want to go, to be honest with you, but sober, you know, I'm a different guy. So instead, so like, how do they, how does the bus go down? They came in on a Monday morning at seven o'clock, uh, 7 a.m. I'm getting ready to take some guys. I'm trying to finish one more house on the beach, uh, in Long Beach, uh, Mississippi, big beachfront house. And um, so we're getting ready to leave on a Monday morning, go to work. All of us have been up all night. Um, and they came in from every angle. They came out of the water, so the divers were in the water. They had no manatees, no, no, no DEA manatees. So that was New Year's Eve. This was like the 6th of January that they finally came in. So I, I wasn't hearing things. Like I knew, I was like, what was that noise? And then the guy, they, they were literally had blankets on. They were in my garage because they had been in the water all night when they finally came in that morning. They're freezing. The divers are in, sitting on the pool table in my garage with blankets around them. And uh, he said, I can't believe you didn't see me the other night. You're standing on the dock. You looked right at me. I said, I, I didn't know what the fuck. 
Like, and I thought dark. you. I thought you were a manatee. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I knew it was something, and that's you know I was sweating, and then there was just cars out of place, you know, that shouldn't have been there, and you, know, you just knew there was. When something. did you? And fun- they called my father up, and they said, if your son doesn't stop doing what he's doing, he's going to go to jail, not to jail. He's going to go to prison, and he's not going to go for a little while. He's going to go for the rest of his life. And what did your dad do? Like he couldn't even believe. Did like, he call you? Yeah, he said, "Do you understand what kind of trouble you're in?" And uh, you know, because they had been in my house a few times, and they came up empty-handed. You know, the one time they found two soma pills, like that was it. So I was like, "Ha ha, gotcha!" So I became more powerful each time they did that. I was more and more arrogant, and I was an arrogant little sob that thought he was getting away with something because he, you know, because you were. Yeah, well, you know, because I put, I encrypt that address where he drop shipped that, you know, by email. And so I thought, well, they can't know where it's coming. It's coming random address every time. Nobody knows except for me and the guy sending it. So. And it never got back to the guy. No, and it never got busted that way. That's not how we got busted. And you didn't get busted with that much anyway. They busted me with four. They let me plea out to 4.9 grams of methamphetamine, 98% pure. So there was a five-year enhancement just for the purity. Right. And so where did they wind up sending you? I ended up in 13 different prisons. Uh, For how long? It took a long time. They wouldn't let me bond out. They let Domino bond out. They went to L.A. and and arrested Domino. But you got to remember. Why did they arrest her? She wasn't the source. But the, the, they go to the CI in Mississippi and say, like, where is it all coming from? He says, I don't know, because I didn't disclose that with him. I, all I know is he has a friend, you know, or his dad's wife's sister is his, like, best friend, and she lives in L.A., and she was here once. So that's all I know, he told her. So they had to assume, because but she, she had already passed charges for methamphetamine, that it was her, because we were the black sheep. But it had nothing to do with Domino. It would have done me no good because they, there's people, maybe even that end up listening to this show, that say, "Well, he told on her." But why would I tell on? It would be like it would be like snitching yeah, on somebody who had nothing to do with you. Yeah, not to mention she was my aunt, and I was in enough of a pickle at the time. So uh, if I'm going to tell, I'm going to give them the real information. Here, hold on. How was prison? Uh, so prison. Um, I, I was uh, not equipped for it because you got to remember I was, I was in um, county jail for a long time because they wouldn't let me bond out. Like my dad even tried to bond me out. They let Domino bond out out in L.A. for $1.3 million on June 24, 2005. So she bonds out. She's got a brace on her knee, I think. She goes home. She was notorious for taking baths. And, um, and the same guy that was giving us the meth would give us these racks of those fentanyl lollipops. So I would put it in my mouth for like a couple minutes and then put it back in the packet, but I wouldn't dare suck on the whole fentanyl lollipop. So In jail? No, 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 no. This is, I'm just telling you, this is what happened to her. She bonds out and, uh, and, so, and she had some sort of AA minder staying with her because she's out on a bracelet, a $1.3 million bond, and ODs and dies in the bathtub. On my birthday, June twenty seventh. Oh my god! At eleven forty five. Oh, I didn't know she. I didn't know that part of the story. Yeah, yeah. And she overdosed on fentanyl. Fentanyl was what killed her. But she knew it was fentanyl. Yeah, I imagine she was mixing it. Right. But you know, when women get in hot water and opiates don't mix, you know, I mean, there's other stories that we both know of 
Whitney Houston. Mm-hmm. Sure, the, sure. When there's a bathtub involved. Right, because your body relaxes. Yeah, and your heart and it opens down. up your blood vessels. And right, you right. You go into cardiac arrest as a healthy, seemingly healthy young woman. Right, right. And, and how long did you have to do in prison? Well, it started off as, because uh, 10 pounds, if you look at it on a federal chart, is 235 months. That's 19 and a half years. So that was what they were pushing for me to do, 19 years. With only having four grams of actual product, but they, the government has what they call relevant conduct. Despite our actual findings, we know what you were doing. Based on what the CI told them, based on very little. And like the Supreme Court says, if you're going to enhance a man's sentence beyond what he pled guilty to, in front of a federal judge, 4.9 grams, that's 16 months. It's not even a federal case. Uh, we're going to charge you after you pled guilty. We're going to charge you and sentence you to 10 pounds. So that's 19 and a half years. I had a team of lawyers that managed to get it down as long as I forfeited all of my assets and cooperated in that sense by giving them all of my assets to 10 years. And then in the federal program, in federal jail, if you do the drug program, you'll get a year off your sentence, plus you'll get a guaranteed six months halfway. So it's like 18 months off your sentence. Then my sentence got re-looked at by the Justice Department towards the latter part of my... So I only did six years. Okay, so you yeah. were in there until 2013 different prisons. Yeah, Til- around they kept moving. And how in. how was your was 13 the- different jails and prisons, I should say, correct myself. How scary was it? Um, when I got to the first place which was Oakdale, Louisiana, it was a medium type security federal prison that was gang run and it was it was a shit show and here I come like unaffiliated with like the anybody. dirty white boys, anybody that was going to protect me. And I'm like, and so somehow or another, I just did okay. I just kept my head down. Um, I was always promised to get out of there and go to the camp that I should have been in because I had no criminal record except for some DUIs, maybe 11 of them. And uh, over the years from every different state. And you have your license back now? I do. Oh, I good. haven't had a DUI since the early 90s so it's been a while but i had a slew of them because back then you could just move and go to another state get a driver's license and i just kept losing my license so now no i don't i also quit drinking and driving that's good yeah that was a bad idea so So, how did you survive prison just like being unaffiliated you like like what's the 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 lesson if you have to go to prison like i made friends with the right people you know and i was just a nice guy so um i also had a running part i started running you know, I was overweight. I was a mess. You know, I had to detox from women, meth, heroin, alcohol, cigarettes, all in one day, you know, like overnight. Not, it didn't take one day. It took longer than that. But I'm saying the toughest detox, I think, is the detox from a woman. You know, because I can get over the heroin. I can get over this. But, you know, there was no suboxone happening for me in county jail so um i got through it uh i ended up uh hurricane katrina came during getting over which woman uh though that one at the time was the little girlfriend i had in mississippi that was just you know you're just attached it really doesn't matter 
I don't want to make them sound insignificant or immaterial, but, you know, uh, her name was Jeannie. She did time, too, just for being my girlfriend. She was the judge's daughter in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi. And was there a severe kick off the dope? Um, there, there was definitely some uncomfortability, uh, but that was done those initial days were done in a county jail before I was moved to the federal holding pen where I stayed. And then Katrina came and blew the roof off the federal holding pen I was in. So the marshals came and got us and took us to another prison, to another prison. And then I waited a year now because it destroyed the courthouse too. There was no place to have court. So I waited an extra eight or nine months to get sentenced. Wow, that's Walking around with a PSI in my hand that said 235 months. And the lawyers say, yeah, but we'll get it better than that. But all I know is I got a piece of paper that says you're going to jail. Were you talking to your dad then? I was. And things were improving? I I wouldn't have been able to make it through without him consoling me and without him forking the bill for all these lawyers. It was like, you know, a lawyer for every different forfeiture lawyer. And he kept hiring a better lawyer and a better lawyer. He tried his damnedest more than any father that I know of, because it went on. He, after I got sentenced, he was still hiring lawyers. Right. You know, and I'm like, Dad, it's over now. Once they put the hammer down, he's like, nah, nah, Supreme Court says they can't enhance your sentence unless they prove it beyond a, a reasonable doubt in front of a jury of your peers. There was no jury, there was no nothing. They violated the Supreme Court, and we're gonna hold him to it. And he did, he did. It just took all the way, when I say I got my sentence reduced, it did. It got reduced. He did his deal. Well, he took it all the way to the White House. After everything that, that went, getting six years is a pretty good deal. The, 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 I was in Talladega uh, Federal Prison, and the, the warden called me in his office. He said, I, I, I don't remember having this conversation before, and I've been a warden a long time. He said, but I just got noticed that your sentence very well may be commuted by, by President Bush before he goes out of office. Wow. And I was like... What? He goes, yeah, that's the facts I got. So I'm here to tell you how that's going to go down. If I get that fax, that he signs that commute, because he does it twice a year, if he signs it, I have to have you off these premises in 24 hours. And you will have no probation. Everything will be wiped off your record. And, uh, you know, so this is the kind of heroics that my dad and access to. that he has but that didn't happen yeah, Bush did I mean, not he had commute. been supporting the Republican Party for how many decades you know and and our inspector from Pennsylvania was a huge player in all this and uh, so but Bush didn't commute your sentence no they instead because there was some uh, Obama got involved his lawyers got involved it was a mess he couldn't he couldn't because it just brought up too much dirty Laundry, laundry or, or yes. whatever. I don't know those details because guess too what? Much, I was there's too much high octane meth in the story <laughs> for you to yeah. be commuted. So instead, they properly sentenced me, and it got reduced by 33 months. Did you uh, did you use it all in prison? No, I ran and read. I read books like so. I I ate salmon, oatmeal, wild rice, ran six miles a day, and got addicted to running like anything else. Couldn't wait to get up onto the track and just run with the music. And I would just run. They called me Forrest Gump. 
Was recovery uh, on the agenda in prison? Well, I was the first one in Talladega to start an AA meeting. My original sponsor from New Orleans would drive all the way there. And he's the one that went to the warden and said, look, we have no AA in this whole prison. And they're very tight-knit about who they let in and out of the prison doors there. This is not a county jail with an AA program. But they finally did, and I'm, I'm sure they do now. You know, But uh, we held the first AA meeting in the Talladega prison camp Incredible. with my sponsor. Yeah. So you get out of there when, in 2011? 2010, yeah. And what, ha- what happens then? Well, they got me moved. Uh, you have to do your probation because I still have, now I still have probation and didn't get community. So I would have had to do my probation in the same county that I got originally arrested, which was Harrison County, Mississippi. And uh, so my dad and the senators got, made a phone call, which was pretty unreal because I was locked up with guys like Bernie Ebers, you know, WorldCom, and he's, you know, we're palling around together. He's trying to get moved too. Believe me, he's got 26 years he's in there. And uh, I... And I got moved. And he's like, you know, so I got moved to Talladega. Then I got my probation moved to Philadelphia. So I went and lived with my mother, took care of my mom. She was ill and uh, stayed at my mother's house and did my probation in Philadelphia. And how was the probation? Tough as nails because of the fact that my folder arrived up there in probation, stamped like spoiled child got moved when he's not supposed to. And so they gave me this woman, Maureen O'Hara. She was the toughest one in the building. And, of course, everybody says they have the toughest. But this, she was a federal probation officer, and she was going by the book with me. So she came, showed up at my house in a blizzard of 2013 in Philadelphia with knee-high snow on a Monday morning. Like, I'm like... Nobody's coming to see me today. She would stop by the house at the most odd times. So you could you were on edge all the time. Were you but did you stay clean? I stayed clean except for when that blizzard came. What happened? That blizzard came and I thought my mom was in Florida and I was there alone and I thought and there was no booze in the house. Like we just didn't have booze. I didn't drink, my mom didn't drink. So I went to looking in the old bar and I went looking because you know, it's snowing. You can't move. There's not even plows on the road. I'm gonna just let me look in that bar down there, you know? And uh and I found an old bottle of Knobs Irish whiskey, brand new, unopened. And that was like Friday night I found that. And it's snowing the whole weekend. That's why I knew she wasn't coming Monday. So I thought, because if you're going to come, when I drink, I'm polluted. If you're going to knock on my door, it's over. You know? Right. But they teach you in federal prison, if you're in the middle of violating or, and she comes to the door, don't answer it. Because you're just giving yourself up. Run. You know, because you'd be better off coming in the next day. For sure, you know. So she came and knocked on the door. I couldn't believe it. She, there was no She's the greatest coming. probation officer in the history of probation <laughs> She officers. knocked on the door. She's blowing the phones up, and I wouldn't answer the door. Because I was just, I was you were done. wiped out yeah. drunk. And, uh, and it, it's 8 o'clock in the morning on a Monday morning. I'm drunk, you know. People say, oh, you drank in the morning. Well, that was the best time to drink, in my opinion. So it seemed to work better in the morning. Yeah, I loved getting high in the morning, for yeah. sure. I loved it. Yeah, wake and bake. Wake and whatever. You know, yeah. That was my favorite thing to do. So, so she, did she violate, or did you, not, did you avoid her? No, she, uh, she kept calling both phones, the landline and the cell phone, and I wouldn't answer, I wouldn't answer. And then I waited long enough that she's, I know she's from the city, so she got long, far enough away, 
and I called her and I said, Maureen, did you, I hope she's not listening, did you try to call me? I, I left my cell phone at the house. I'd been out plowing snow with my buddy all night. And he came to pick me up and I ran out of the house without my cell phone. Because both the cars were in the driveway. So she knew That's not, that you were, you should have been at home. Yeah. So yeah. I had to come up with a story. That's Why a good story. Were, yeah. She bought it. She goes, in my office tomorrow morning, 8 o'clock, which is like all the way downtown. I went down there and she said, you don't look right. You know? And uh, so she was on to me. You know, she, she knew, you know, that I wasn't sober anymore. But she couldn't. They give you a breathalyzer when you get there and they take... A UA and and you're on crazy probation. Does it does does the uh, does the alcohol beget like a crazy relapse in Philly? Um, I, I got to keep it under control because I don't want to go back to federal prison. You know, all that money was spent trying to get me out, and now I'm going to piss it away and go back. That would be a perfect Diddy stunt. You but, know what I mean? That that that's my mo. Let me go right back. You know, so no, I I. Uh, I finished the probation. So once you finish it, um, when do you start on, on this recovery journey? Let me think. Well, I... Um, when did you decide you want to be in recovery and like you like programming? I all went stuff? to treatment a couple times in Philadelphia, a place called Miramont. And I, and I again, it's the same guy. I really want it, but I'm missing a piece. Hold on. If you hadn't violated the probation, why did you have to go to the treatment? I did that on my own. I did that on my own because I had some people in my life that cared about me. I had been going to AA a little bit and, you know, it's like, what are you going to do, you know? And then I think I drank myself stupid. Like I was just, again, polluted to where I really needed a proper detox. So I went to treatment and... Um, I feel like I'm raking you over the coals. No, no, here. it's okay. Uh, I sort of pulled myself together, and I and I started going to AA, and I found this great home group, um, which I'm pretty good at. It's usually a 7 a.m. group. Yeah, I, mean, I go to an 8 a.m. one now. I got sober in a 7:30 meeting. I can totally relate. Yeah, and these guys rallied around me. It was in Ardmore, Pennsylvania. Was it like seven days a week meeting kind of yeah. thing? Yeah, yeah, those are the best meetings. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And I get really attached really quickly. Whereas, like, right now I'm in Pompano, and I haven't, in Florida, and I, and I moved from West Palm Beach down to Pompano. I'm having trouble, like, finding my tribe down there, you know? And I, you know, I just recently read a book called Tribe, and, and it really goes into the importance of us making that connection. It's like you and I sitting across from each other instead of doing this on the phone. It's a whole nother ballgame. Of course. Like, I can feel you in this room. There's a magic that can go on between you and I, minus the microphones. We're just sitting here bullshitting. So um, I have not yet really got plugged in. And so I'll travel all the way back to my old home groups in West Palm. How far a drive is it? It's an hour, you know, but then we have dinner. So that's another hour. And then you catch some traffic. So it's a four-hour deal for me to go to my home group. But the meeting really starts when I get in my car. You know, because I start thinking or I start, I'm on the phone with the other guys. You got to find a spot in Pompano. Yeah, but I was the guy that, you know, when you saw one of those sponsors that had his little league of guys following him, that used to repulse me. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I just, I, I could never be a groupie. I could never be a AA rah-rah. Like, it just made me want to vomit. Me too. Disgusting. And I think, though, that a lot of that 
is just my fear of people. And all those guys work out all the time and wear T-shirts that are four sizes too small. And it's like, I don't fit in with that, you know? No, me neither. And, <laughs> you know? and, and, and so I judge them. And that's my other thing that kept me from being sober. It's just, you know, I'm, I'm judging everybody. You know, like, how am I better? I'm no better than anybody. No. And until I realized that I was nobody, did I then become somebody. You I know, know what exactly I mean? what you mean. But be, I had, I walked into a meeting in Delray, Florida, Delray Beach, and I was supposed to meet some of my friends at a men's meeting. And so there's a bunch of churches on North Swinton, they call it. So I thought it was 7, and so I walked in, and it, the meeting I was supposed to go to was at 7.30, and I, I thought he said 7, so I walked into this meeting, and uh, it was just about to start, and they had, you know, school tables set up with chairs and a... And a a guy at the front with two people at the front running the meeting. And there was a piece of eight by 10. There was a prayer at everybody's seat and it was called the set aside prayer meeting. And I've been 30 some years, thousands of meetings. I never heard of no set aside prayer. So I'm like, so I sat down and just stayed at this meeting. I was not supposed to be at that meeting. And it was a pivotal point in my life because you could tell me a hundred times, oh, you're taking your will back. And that doesn't commute with me. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't, like, what are you talking about? Will, when God's didn't I, will, when didn't I have a will. will. I don't even believe in God, let alone will. All I am is a willful character. I know that. Like, I'm full of will. Like, go sling meth for two years and and be told by the guy from the DEA if you don't stop now you're going to jail for the rest of your life and the next day order double that's a willful I, I wasn't will you know so uh total defiance like total total, total definition of self will run right lady said that to me at Alina Lodge I'll never forget she said you know there's nothing worse than a defiant alcoholic What's what, what's the undefined alcoholic look like? Well, just one that kind of comes in, goes you know, with like the, the one chip right, wonder that right, goes, oh right. yeah, I drink too much, and 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 uh, all the power to those guys because you just surrender when you walk in the door. I wasn't that guy, you know. I no, wasn't. I, mean, I get it. I wasn't that guy. So so when you heard the set aside prayer, set aside everything you thought you knew, it it made sense to me. Yeah. All of these ideas that I thought were so great took me to federal prison. They destroyed my life, my family's lives. They, they caused havoc and millions of dollars. And, and they were all my ideas that I thought were so great. You know, I could get myself, I could wiggle myself out of a pickle. Also, all the shame of coming from all this money and having no prestige that you thought you deserved and you couldn't figure out how to hold on to. And the shame around all of it and the guilt that you don't get to be who somebody thought you were supposed to oh, be. Yeah. The other guys that work for my dad say, like, you know, see me at a party and just say, you're a fucking idiot. They work for him. Yeah, that's great. And that's I'm, great to hear. And I'm over in the corner <laughs> snorting coke. Right, right. You know, what's the matter with you, kid? I, 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 I didn't have a... I mean, like, I went to a meeting to get sober, but when we, it was actually when we had started doing the show. And Chris, the guy who I started the show with knew everything about program and the book and he just knew a lot of shit and i found a a big book study in my town and they would open that meeting with the set aside and uh, i had never heard it before either and i was like this awesome. is really interesting to me it made sense yeah, to me me too it was like and, and the more of my ideas i set up aside the more surrendered i am because it's only those ideas that allow me to continue to be resistant to a better life to a, to a life of service and that's all I do now. 
So you you said you uh, you would have, how many years would you have if not for the ketamine experience? Well, in the beginning of COVID, I had no sponsor. I was trapped in the house. But with how much COVID. abstinence? I had a bad time. business partner. So four years, I I went and went to Banyan four years ago, and then I had a short relapse. So I haven't been back to drugs, but alcohol, yes. Okay, you had an and alcoholic slip in, in like two thousand eighteen. Went to treatment again. So. I should have three years, except for, again, never was I engaged with the steps, a sponsor, anything until two years ago. So that's when I start my time. I went and got a real sponsor. I went and got the guy that had a bunch of guys around him that I've been looking at in my home group going, I don't even want to talk to him. I don't even want to know his name. In fact, two years later, I was still getting to know his name. Like I just, because I was a visitor, at, I was a tourist at those meetings. I was never, I was never part of. You're never a local. No, no, and uh, and I would pretend like to say hi, but I'm not a part of. I am not a part of. Well, you. It's funny because I think becoming a part of a tribe, becoming a part of a fellowship, is just like getting sober. It's making a decision and taking some action. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you are that thing. The thing you thought you never could be, all of a sudden you are a bunch of those things because you've made a decision and you've adjusted just slightly so you've changed your MO, your belief about who you are in conjunction with this thing. Totally, totally. And and it but that that new pair of glasses was slowly given to me uh over the course of those twelve steps. Like so I so the fourth and fifth weren't the linchpin for me either. And probably it was six and seven. But then when I got to, I keep saying that, then when I get to eight and nine and I start building bridges from bridges that I thought were torn apart, I thought, I'll never talk to that guy again. People don't dislike me. They despise me. So when I'm able to mend one of those bridges, it's like that, that ninth step is ever so propelling to make, want to continue because you got to figure my eight and nine is going to take years, you know. And uh, so you're still in the process. To uh, Thursday Thanksgiving, I have another one to do. Yeah, who's, I'll who's be on, in Philadelphia. Who's... An uncle, you know. I had these great uncles. They're all lawyers. They've all tried to help me for years. And I got mouthy with one at my mom's funeral a while back. And uh, so uh, sounds like a good amend to make. Yeah. Yeah, sounds like you didn't you didn't like steal too much from him. You just got mouthy, so that's yeah, okay. yeah. No, I just was tell the ketamine story real quick because I think people could benefit from that. Yeah, well, I I don't think it's a it's a bad path. I just think whatever intention you go in there with. Um, what you're saying is you went for ketamine treatment. I did for depression. I did. This was right after I finished TMS. So I have been on a host through all these treatment What's centers. What's TMS? Trionis is transcranial magnetic stimulation. Okay. Okay, it's the newest science towards How is that? mental health. It's changed my life. TMS. It's changed my life. What does so it I was do? on a double dose of Wellbutrin, Lexapro, uh, every, you know, mood stabilizers, a whole host of medications, you know, and another one to go to sleep with, like doxepin or something. But I'm like on 14 pills a day. You know, and I don't want to be. And guess what? Those, none of those pills ever really worked. And that you don't know how they didn't work 
until you do something that does work. And then you realize, oh, I thought that they were kind of working or you were hoping that they were working. And, and then I did TMS. It's 37, 35-minute sessions where they restore the dopamine production in your brain. How do they through, do it? It's a magnet that's on the side of your head, and it taps you in just the right spot. So there's many measurements done. It's uh, like a helmet that goes over your head. I heard about this. Yeah, yeah. And, and you found it to be effective. Very effective. So effective that I don't take any meds anymore. And you still do it? I, oh, well, no, I did that. That was... So I did that, finished that, and then I thought, oh, let me take it to the next level. And I kept hearing, and it's all over Facebook, the ketamine treatments. And, but I realized when I went back for that second ketamine treatment, it was because I wanted to get high. How was the first one, though? The first one was, was what gave me this bird's eye view of all these things that I was so stressed about in life, like all these problems that I keep on board I was keeping on board because I have a disease of entitlement. So if I keep problems in my life and I put myself in positions to be hurt and you hurt me bad enough, then one day I get to go drink. It's like keeping a safety net that one. So I, there's that reservation that you really don't have, but I'm a victim. So if I never step off the victim pedestal into and put a new pair of glasses on that says life is now happening for me. And, and when it's I wake yours. up, and it's yours. I wake up in the morning and I'm like, I bounce out of bed. So, and I woke up the other morning, I posted it on Facebook and I don't post very much stuff, but I woke up and it was a profound moment because I woke up and I realized there was nothing wrong. Like there's always been something wrong. If you knew my life, there is a lot of shit wrong. And from early childhood, what I don't have to get into and abuse issues and, I've been through it all too. So, and my sisters especially. But who abused you? Well, we had a stepfather that was just the worst, you know. And um, it's not for me to talk about that. You know, he abused me physically. We grew up on a horse farm. He used a horse crop. And he would, you know, I was the only boy. So I was always in trouble, you know. But he was always drunk. So the trouble didn't, you know, the punishment didn't meet the really a bad drinker guy who would just whip me with that horse crop until I would bleed to my sheets. And, uh, and your mother never intervened? She couldn't. He was a big old German guy that just scared everybody. When he was angry and drunk like that, no, everybody ran for the hills. Right, right. You know? Horrible. So, so, you know, trauma, lots of other trauma. A lot of stuff happened, you know. Our house was, you know, they wrote a book about, uh, it's a, the book is called Last Call. Um, and it was a neighborhood girl that was a friend of my sister's who got sober a long time ago. I think she's got 20 years of sobriety now, but she wrote a book called Last Call, and it was essentially that at our house was always Last Call, and all the charades that went on in the neighborhood and at our house and um, with our family, and you know, with my father was always trying to do something great. Like, he did some great stuff in Philadelphia, and uh, some really great stuff. And he owned the Philadelphia Freedoms, the tennis team, and Billie Jean King, and, and Elton John wrote that song, Philadelphia Freedom, for sure. my dad. And so, Are you friendly with Elton John? Many years ago. We need to get him on Dopey. So <laughs> that's, if I'm putting yeah. in the favor with Diddy, that's the favor I want. That would be me overstaking my... Uh, yes, sir. I <laughs> understand. Um, what was I going to say? So like you had mentioned a bunch of times about these houses. Are you out of this business? 
So yeah, I got out, I got involved with another person that I probably shouldn't have been involved with, a guy that I helped get sober, and he said, called me, fa- you're family now, you know. He was very, very wealthy uh, from Wall Street kind of guy that retired in Florida and was just trying to make a little bit of change and had a lot of trouble getting sober. So he said, let's buy some houses and then flip them. And I said, how about better than that? Because I had just read the book, um, uh, A Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And I read that book and I thought, for me just to be flipping houses and making money, how about a better purpose? And so how about we really try to bring some quality sober living, halfway house living, to the little town of Lake Worth, Florida, which desperately needed it. No, I, I got sober in Delray. That's where me and Sam had met. Yeah. So I know what it's like down there. Yeah. So. But I think all intentions of building any kind of sober house is very, very difficult to maintain. <laughs> I only know two guys that have done it successfully. One is St. Paul Sober Living, and the other one is is called uh, The Lodge at Delray. And it's in... Uh, it's in Delray, and it's run by uh, a couple that's been doing it for a very long time, and they are stellar at what they do. You need to be. <laughs> you yeah, need to I mean, because you know why? They weren't just in it for the money. Right. They really care about people, and they still care about people, and they're just good, good people. Diddy, I think this might be, this is definitely one of the craziest stories we've ever recorded, and one of the longer ones, but like, what a journey. Do you think, do you feel like you've left anything out that you want to add before we finish? Well, Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I talked about my relationships with, <clears throat> with, excuse me, with women and how destructive at times that's been. But, like, I've always been this hopeless romantic. And, and so now that I have punched my way through the 12 steps, have a real sponsor, and some, found some freedom, not all days are great, and, and I don't care about money. I am not seeking money anymore. And the minute I stop searching for money or stop scrambling for money, stop fearing money, was the minute I all of a sudden have some because I don't spend it as much or something, but I don't worry about money anymore. So when I woke up the other morning and said, nothing's wrong, I don't have any real money, but I don't really need any either. You have what you need. I have what I need. And... This girl stumbled into my life. Um, so when I left New Orleans, I lost my three dogs. It's a horrific story, but I had three of the most beautiful dogs, and they robbed my house while I was at my mother's funeral, and they took my dogs, mm. too. So I meet this girl who's from Philadelphia, but she lives in Florida. She's, uh, she escaped Iraq with her two daughters, so she's a refugee uh, from Iraq that's a citizen here now, doesn't drink, Gorgeous, two beautiful daughters, and uh, so we have this great life together. It brings me to tears because it's, uh, I can picture her face now, and it's been a minute. Like, we've been in each other's presence and living together day and night every day for a year, and it's still just as good or better than it was the first day. You know, we just have fun, we eat. I put on a little weight with her because she cooks unbelievably, and uh, we just giggle a lot, have fun. I found a girl that's not after money, and she doesn't drink. She doesn't even want to drink. Is she going to go to Thanksgiving? She's meeting me in Philly tomorrow. All right. Well, listen, you deserve happiness, yeah. and you deserve uh, 
joy and you did, you don't need to like I mean you were worried that this show was going to be like all rock'em sock'em and it was a lot of rock'em sock'em <laughs> yeah. but but the, the the psychic change that you've experienced is is obvious to me and like how important the message of of doing the next right thing and 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 being capable of changing is like the most important thing I feel like I've absorbed and I never really look for a message but I really do feel like your story is about change and you don't have to be the person that you were saddled with for so long. Yeah. Yeah. I believe in the process now. I never believed it. I Me believed too. in my process. I, I never was, I was never fucking into it at all. And, um, I'm only into it now because it's the results have been undeniable, you know, and they're spiritual results. They're not fine. I looked for financial results and, and, and status and or this, this whatever. Crap. Right. Right. And right. I, you know, I don't care about any of that anymore. I just want some peace, this little dog we have. And I, I, so Maybe call me simple, but simple's good for me right now. It's like after we hang up the phone, your father's gonna be like, "Listen, this guy with a truckload of Dilaudid is on the corner of Twenty Seventh and Eighth. <laughs> yeah, can you, you can drive him? Can you drive it? Can you get, it? It? Can you get yeah. him to treatment? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't answer the phone. Believe me, my father only had good intentions. Of course, he just didn't know. I'm we just joking. I'm oh, just joking. I know you I'm are. I know you are. No. no, it's been awesome, and I'm honored that you guys uh, had me on here, and, and I get the opportunity to. You know, maybe somebody hears something in this that... Uh, Dude, it's a fucking whopper of a tale. So there you have it. Confessions of a crystal meth dealer. Uh, please send an email, send a voicemail. I would love to hear your opinions about Diddy. Send it to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Serious business. It's a fucking serious, serious story. And... Um, you know, join us next week where we will hear voicemails and stories and we'll have a good time. And uh, I hope you guys are okay. Keep your head on straight. I want to thank Cormac over in Reddit land. I want to thank everybody who listens to the end of the show. I want to thank anybody who uh, listens to Dopey on Spotify and gets that Spotify rap shit and promotes Dopey. That always makes me feel good. Don't be shy. Promote your wrapped if Dopey's in it because it makes me feel good. It gets me gets me the tiniest bit high. So um, I don't know. I'm so tired of social media. It's like makes me sick. I'm ready to change. I'm ready to have a, a total life change. I'm ready to become a better person. I'm done with it. I'm tired of it. I'm done. I'm going to quit. I, I can't quit though because Dopey needs it. That's my, my sick self-deception. Um, I'm in third place in this horrible fantasy league. We've been getting some dopey reviews that are that are five stars. So uh, don't be shy. Leave a d review on iTunes. My dad will read it. I kind of want to read one now, but I know my dad loves to read them. So I'll save it for my dad. And until next week, I guess you can go to Patreon. There will be new shit on Patreon. Go to Patreon, www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. If you want anything, hit me up. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad want to be so good, so bad, so bad 
I want to be good so bad. Bad desire's all I ever had. And I want to take a ride up in the sky. Watch as airplanes just pass me by. And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive. Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive. But I want to be good so bad. Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad I wanna be good, so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And my shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand Shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand Pay it any mind When I leave this busted city far behind I'll take the high road However far it winds Because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find And I wanna be good so bad Wanna be good so bad, so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And these suckers make me mad And I wanna call my dad And it's all I ever had 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 And these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And I wanna call my dad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had